Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the Picture Palace in the past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight, the Ballyhoo comes to you from Budapest, Hungary, where we have set up our projector outside of Matichek and Company. For tonight's story concerns them heavily. After all, tonight's picture from 1940 is the story of Matichek and Company, of Mr. Matichek and the people who work for him. It's just around the corner from Andrasi Street, on Balta Street. That's right, tonight we revel in the perfection courtesy of the Lubitsch touched with a stacked cast of colorful characters, the harrowing stakes of human drama, the giddy levity amidst even dire circumstances, and the amazing things a simple letter can do for romance all at the shop around the corner. So see the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. Ladies and gentlemen, permit me to introduce myself. I uh, I am Mr. Matuchek of Matuchek and Company, the shop around the corner. <laughs> now, if you'll be kind enough to take a look at the window, you'll see that we sell some very nice things. Of course, my shop may be a little far away for some of you. It's uh, it's in Budapest, Hungary, just around the corner from Balta Street. But I'm sure that the bargains you get here will more than make your trip worthwhile. It's, uh, it's the kind of a shop where you get a 350 value for 348. And now, with your permission, I, uh, I would like to introduce you to some of the people who work in my shop. First, I'd like you to get acquainted with my head salesman, Mr. Kralik, played by James Stewart. Yeah, I can buy two dozen of these cigarette boxes at Miklos Brothers. What do you think of it? I think it's great. Well, open it. <laughs> No, Mr. Matichek, it's not for us. But you haven't listened to it. It plays Ojichornia. Even if it played Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, I'd still say no. No, I, I just don't like the idea. My first sales lady is Clara Novak, played by the very charming Margaret Sullivan. She argues, too. Listen, I sold as much goods yesterday as anybody else in the shop. 95 Pengo 50 isn't bad for a rainy Monday three weeks before Christmas. Did you tell that to Mr. Matichek? Yes, I did. And what did he say? He said, tell her not to come in that blouse anymore. Tell him I won't. I will. Now, I want you to take a look at Mr. Perovich, played by Felix Bressard. He, uh, he was one of the Russian comrades in Ninochka. He's the typical sales clerk, who is always ten minutes early. Perovich, do you mind if I ask you a personal question? No, no, go ahead. Well, it's very confidential. Yeah, sure. Well, I suppose a fellow like me wants to get married. Well, that's wonderful. That's the best thing that could happen to you. Who's the girl? Oh, wait a minute. What did I say? I said, suppose. I said, a fellow like me, I did say me. Now, look, how much does it cost you to live? Uh, you and Mrs. Pirovich are leaving out the children. Oh, why fool yourself? And now, I have a real treat for you. You are to meet the Beau Brummel of the shop, Mr. Vadash, played by Joseph Schilkraut. Everybody wonders where he gets the money to dress so elegantly. He certainly can't do it on the salary he gets from me. And no shop is complete without an errand boy. Meet Pepe, played by William Tracy. Mr. Clark, do you think I have to work tonight, too? After all, I'm a child. No, you don't have to stay. You mean it? I'll straighten it out with Mr. Matichek. Thanks, Mr. Clark. So now you go to see your girlfriend. By the way, is it serious? Yes, very. Maybe. Maybe we'll both be engaged Monday. 
I think we will. Uh, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I just said in my case it might happen. Well, as a matter of fact, I can tell you it will happen. Ah, oh, <laughs> I thought you were a customer. <laughs> I should have known better. <laughs> However, every disappointment has its bright side. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to meet Ernst Lubitsch, our director. Uh, the man who gave you a garbo in Ninochka who made you laugh, and who now gives you a Morgan who makes you laugh. I hope. Yes, I hope so too, in the shop around the corner. Now that you've seen the show, we will get to the talk of the day. Yes, in 1940, Lubitsch was still at MGM cranking out his usual brand of brilliance in the world of sophisticated innuendo-laden comedy. Thievery, brand that, the very brand that would unfold a story like The Shop Around a Corner. Why has this film stood the test of time and been retold through the years in various forms? And how has it become the pinnacle example for rom-coms to this day? Well, we shall attempt to ascertain an answer, but we cannot do it alone. With us today is a writer and podcaster whose look at humor of the past has been beneficial to the generations to come with all of the classics. Please welcome Hope Sears. Oh, that's a great introduction. No, it's not. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> it's, <laughs> if it's so great, Hope, how come a time machine hasn't come and grabbed me to take me back to 1940 to do the voiceovers for all these trailers? <laughs> Well, you know, a time machine, if the time machine has invent, been invented, I have hypothesized it has not because someone would have used it to win the lottery and give them a ton of money. That is true. That is true. Or use the sports almanac to change, mm -hmm. to, to win a bunch of money, become a Trump-esque billionaire and hang out with Marty McFly's mom. Oh, I, I, I was going to say, uh, yeah, basically the plot to Marty McFly. Yeah, you, you know, uh, you know, Hope, I know we were going to talk about the shop around the corner, but we should just talk about the Back to the Future franchise. So here's my <laughs> here's my issue with 1950s Marty McFly not understanding the brilliance of the presidential cabinet that Doc Brown expouts. You've got Ronald Reagan. You've got Jerry Lewis as the vice president. You've got Jack Benny as the secretary of the treasury. It's a golden lineup. <laughs> It, it is. <laughs> um, but um, <laughs> it's still that one moment. Like I know we're we're both Jack Benny fans. Yes. Oh but even God. even that line on its face, not being a fan, I'm just like that is just a good like one off line as he's running down back to the back to the laboratory. Like it's not well, it's not an essential joke in the movie. It's. <laughs> Yeah, it's, I haven't watched that movie probably in about 10 years, so. It does hold yeah. up. It's yeah. not my favorite time travel movie, but it does okay. hold up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I'm a I'm a Bill and Ted sucker, uh, first and foremost, so. Because I, because I do believe that Genghis Kong hang out at the mall once. Um, but Hope, welcome to the show. Um, yeah. So you, you're, um, you're relatively new within the sphere of Ballyhoo in general. Um, but you've technically been a part of it. As of this recording, we'll have already released the panel that I did at the Jack Benny convention with Kathy Seely and Leonard Malton, but you were helping 
facilitate that convention alongside with me and John Matthews and Walden Hughes. Um, but you've been in the podcasting game for a while now. This is not your first rodeo. Can you yeah. tell a little bit of uh, about your show to the fine people of Ballyhoo Review listenership? Sure. Uh, I started the podcast because it's called All of the Classics. And I started the podcast because, um, well, I love the classics, but I wanted it to be more about um, the guests that uh, appear on my show because I kind of want somebody that's passionate about what they're talking about. So if it's Jack Benny or if it's Johnny Carson, I've had uh, people on the podcast that talk about those people and they're very passionate about those because I think the passion really shines through and makes for a good conversation. So that's kind of what I did with that. Um, I've been doing it for about three years. Don't have too many episodes. It just, you know, kind of depends on who I can get on the schedule. So Mm -hmm. Well, you, you've actually set yourself up for um, mental mental ease and rest because I decided to try and attempt a weekly show, and now I'm driving myself crazy. <laughs> um, but I attempted it. <laughs> I was very unsuccessful. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. You are successful because you are you are bringing to the forefront subjects about comedy that I think I don't think they fall through the cracks, but they certainly aren't appreciated the way they probably could um the johnny carson one in particular um was one of my favorites to listen to after i my first one was the benny ones because i'm like well let's see what their benny knowledge is all about and then i'm just like oh she she asks smarter questions than i do okay now let's hear what else she has to say (laughs) i don't know about that you do you do your research and there's i think you do like you do different questions. Yeah. Like, but you, you actually, can I tell you the specific question that, okay. that sold me on it? And this is why, like, after I, while I was listening to the episode, I messaged Laura Leibowitz, our mutual friend, to be like, she's freaking great. Do you understand, like, how, how in tune she is to the interview process? She, so you were talking to her about Mary Livingston, who was Jack Benny's wife. The fact that I did not know this, and you you had technically done your research far beyond even me. She had appeared on radio before Jack, which mm-hmm. I was not privy to. I had no idea. Now, clearly, Laura knew this, and I'm going to take the guess and say that Kathy knew it already. So, like, I don't I, know what bubble I was living in, but... <laughs> well, and I think you actually said this to me before, that that was the question, and, like... I was like, I totally forgot that I asked that question because I thought I thought Jack Benny was the first. And then I then I was like, okay, so where did I find that? Because then I was trying to look for it. And then I I, I you know what I think it was is I think I was list when I do an interview with someone, I try to listen to like what they they have also appeared on. So I was listening to all of Laura's interviews and i think she said it on one of them and so that struck me obviously because like you and me were like what yeah like this this seems strange and what's weird is that you the way it's described by laura and kind of elaborated by you is that it seems like jack was kind of giving sideline notes because like the 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 interesting part of it is that this is at a time when he's trying to become a movie star and then and he doesn't give radio much of a thought. And then he's, and then little does he know it's going to occupy his life going forward. 
Um, yes. Which, you know, like in the research that I've had to be, I've been doing for my own work on this matter, learning how much, how little he thought of radio at that time is, is flooring to just like, to really kind of grasp to just like, yeah. he did, he could have given two shits about the radio. Um, so to, uh, to have that, but to have that insight is important because you can look at a figure like Jack or Johnny or Steve Martin and, you know, you can hear the legends, you can hear the basic stories of their, up, of their coming up and their rise up. But hearing those little tiny details provides that perspective to understand a life and to understand an artist. Right. That's also something I wanted to do because like there's uh, and Steve Martin has talked about this process is like uh, you haven't, you don't just arrive. Mm -hmm. and, like, there's so like, there's always the story of the celebrity and it's like, okay, but how did you get from here to here? And that's like literally a line that I think Steve Martin had said in a interview with Charlie Rose. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. It, and um, and it does provide that area of the like the um the uh the the the, the idea of the workmanship or and the uh, workmanlike quality that they had to deal with before mass stardom um which is which when you look at a lot of the figures that we discuss on this show a lot of them don't just appear out of nowhere it comes from either vaudeville or the stage first they've run through there like I think John Wayne is the one that we've talked about where he came from practically nowhere. Uh, but that's not exactly true because he worked as a PA, a stunt coordinator and uh, uh, an assistant for John Ford. And then John Ford put him in stuff and then other people started putting him in stuff. So. Right. I remember back when Netflix was not what it is now. Uh, cause I think they've taken this off, but there was a John Wayne movie in that I was watching it and I was like, Oh, the legend of John Wayne has not been made yet. So this is, this is like a pre stagecoach scenario then. Okay. Yeah. It was like really early on. And I like, I remember looking at it and was like, okay, this is definitely one of his first films because this sucks. Yeah. Because he does feel like he, like, I mean, and we had our talk about John Wayne on, episode 12 of the show and I'm not going to get into depress. We're talking about the shop around the corner. We don't have to talk about depressing. This, this is true, right? We don't yeah. have to talk about depressing old white men, but I will say that the, when you watch him in stagecoach, he does look like he just popped out of the oven, ready to go. Like in terms right. of a movie star, like that shot where they're pushing in and he's, you know, you know, spinning the gun and, you know, it, the Ringo kid has arrived. John Wayne has arrived. Like it is an undeniable movie star yeah. entrance. Um, right. There's I a reason why they play it on clip shows. <laughs> right. I'm trying to think. So, like, I think Cary Grant actually came from. I mean, yes, he like was in a bunch of little shows, but like he literally was in a show like one of his very first roles. Like he was just walking around the studio and Mae West was like, who's that? And he's like, put him in my next picture, yeah. put him in my next picture. I want him. And so like, that was like one of his very first roles, I think if not his first and like, well, but, he, then, yeah. but then he had this period where he's doing shit shows. Like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, my co-host on real nerds, Ryan, he's, he's the Cary Grant aficionado. Yeah. Um, a lot of the stuff that he did with, may west was at paramount and he has this period at paramount where paramount's giving him jack crap to do 
Um, mm-hmm. And then when he starts becoming independent and getting himself outside of Paramount's purview, he gets picked up for amongst things like a contract with Columbia where they have him make the awful truth, something that he oh, yeah. initially tries to get out of. And then Leo McCary is like, no, you're fucking doing it anyway. <laughs> yeah. um, and giving him no choice but to sing with that dog. And it yeah. turned out to be amazing. Um, yeah. Uh, and the yeah, the Grant persona, as, as we've discussed in the past, it doesn't happen overnight either. Um, and frankly, it's, neither does any of the miracles yeah. that happen in the movie we're going to talk about today. Yes. Um, but um, before we do that, though, I do want to ask the question that I ask all of my guests. How? What is your experience with Golden Age Hollywood? What is your entry point and what is your relationship with it in terms of like how you receive it today and what yeah. do you appreciate? So that's kind of hard because like I was introduced to Golden Age when I was probably really young and I didn't care for it too much, but it was just what, you know, my mom liked to watch. So I'd watch along with her. So I actually think it probably was like a Cary Grant Doris Day movie, that touch of mink. I can remember watching that touch of mink, but I remember the very first movie that like my mom was like, you should watch this because I was in second grade or something like that. And I said, I wanted to run a hotel for some reason. <laughs> I don't remember. And she told me to watch Holiday Inn. And so ah. I loved that movie. But also a blackface scene in it. So Yeah, yeah. So big, I big, big Crosby's got that problem all across the board. <laughs> I, I watch it at Christmas and... Um, uh, not Christmas time, not Christmas day, but like I watch it at Christmas time and uh, 4th of July because I like the 4th of July number, but I watch it alone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I, do appre- I do appreciate you having the boundary with that because <laughs> I can't, I rewatched You Can't Cheat an Honest Man recently. And as I said it, in, the, in a little joke up at the top, I had not watched the movie in a while and I had forgotten that Charlie McCarthy, the, the well-known ventriloquist dummy is being uh, applied. So a liberal amount of shoe polish to his face by Mr. Edgar Berg. And I'm like, Oh no, like you're what my gets, favorite Disney character. What happened? <laughs> what gets me about holiday Inn is they've incorporated that into the plot. Yeah. yeah. And so like, it's kind of hard to, pull it out with it making as much sense you the the amount of discussion around holiday in which will happen i i you know it's funny like actually yeah no <laughs> full, full disclosure actually you technically you've also with your selection today you've picked the first christmas movie we've discussed on the show mm, um yeah. not counting psycho because that was on shamley even though shamley has already proven that Psycho is the world's greatest Christmas movie because it has a it has it takes place in December and I see Christmas lights in certain scenes. So therefore, it's the Christmas movie. If we're gonna play the dumb diehard game, I'm gonna play this game to its fullest extent. Um, <laughs> but uh, but anyway, yes, Holiday Inns. The discussion around that involves a similar discussion into the jazz singer or. Uh, other films or babes in arms where it's integral to some of the emotional climaxes. And it's, 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 um, it's, it's, it's hard. Although I would argue holiday Inn has less 
film merit than the jazz singer. Yes, technically. Yeah, well, Holiday Inn has pop culture significance outside of the problematic issues we're discussing. Yes, yes, it was the very first time we heard White Christmas. Yes, but that being said, it doesn't... um, doesn't yeah. excuse the issue oh, at hand. Yeah. No, it doesn't excuse any of it. Um, yeah, and yeah, we're and, and even the jazz singer as I mean, and I've talked about this with the jazz singer and also things like Birth of a Nation or Gone with the Wind. Regardless of any milestones they touch, it doesn't excuse the behavior in the movies. Um, but, I really appreciate your podcast for like you, what you've done with like the discussion around such films because you have a very good way of talking about it and wording it and helping, I I think helping people understand. I I, I'm trying to, I I mean, I gotta be honest. What's funny is that this show started in November. Shamley started it off, but this show as it stands now started in November. And just last month we got the news of the TCM series, which I, if I had TCM, I'd be watching it because I want to watch Mankiewicz and Jacqueline Stewart talking about these films. Yes. And I believe Eddie Muller's on it too, which would be even um, even more amazing because then you could talk about noir in that respect too. Yeah. Um, but I, I do find that when f- people overreact to people wanting to talk about it, yeah, that's where my issue lies. Is like, well, well, no, 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 no. Hold on, you can't just ignore something like that. They put Psycho on the list, and Psycho is one of my favorite movies of all time. And I, I paused for a second. I'm like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. That the, the there there's imagery in there that could be misconstrued. And if you don't discuss Norman Bates's uh, inhabiting of his mother. It does look like it's pointing a finger at transgender or tra- or transsexual as uh, villains in a movie, and I'm like, oh yeah, yeah you got to talk about that. Yeah, that's yeah. um, and that's not like a Hitchcock only problem. Brian De Palma does that too, so it's yeah. not like this is this is not yeah. a Golden Age Hollywood problem. This is an always been around problem. But anyway, we're not here to talk about anything problematic really today. Um, it's actually kind of a relief. We're, but yeah. I, I did want to have you finish up the question, the initial question, which is so. Oh, yeah. So you did, like, you started watching things like Holiday Inn. Um, yeah. And like, then somewhere along the way, I don't really, I can't really identify where. Probably in high school, I was watching like a late night movie, and I think it was Brigadoon with Gene <laughs> Kelly and Van Johnson, and I was like. Brigadoon, yeah. Gene Kelly hated making that movie, but it, like <laughs> because, because that's my entry point to Gene Kelly, I love that movie. It, it, <laughs> that that's to, that's totally fair. But is Gene? But then Gene Kelly hating making Brigadoon puts him in line with every high school theater kid in history. <laughs> <laughs> I I never went to, when I was in school we never did Brigadoon. Yeah. But I knew of years before or after my time yeah. there where they did Brigadoon and I was oh and I hadn't I hadn't heard of Brigadoon at that point. Actually, I don't think I caught Brigadoon with Gene Kelly until college. I think it was there were some things going on in his personal life and honestly like looking at the scenes they were the the set was terrible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, 
but otherwise I think it was I I liked it but it's it's not like a one that you must watch it's an it's an interesting watch and so I think back then blockbuster video was doing this thing where they were sending out videos through like sort of like a Netflix thing but not streaming back when Netflix would kind of send out DVDs yeah the disc the disc the the disc program yeah yeah and so they had a lot of good stuff on there so I started looking up Gene Kelly movies through that Van Johnson movies through that and then around that time my mom uh got me into the Dick Van Dyke show and uh so then it just you know just spun off from there and I love Johnny Carson because I also started watching late night television and uh I it was clear Conan which I adored loved Johnny Carson so then then everything spun out of control (laughs) and and then you ended up at a Jack Benny convention and then everything Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) yeah now now Here's the here's the question I have for you because you are you are you are the first one to bring this up officially on a list when I sent out requests for guests. Um, now you were in the second round of people that I were um, asked like who want to come on the show, and mm-hmm. you you gave a you gave a very interesting list. And if we hadn't already done a whole series on Hitchcock, I would have said Rear Window right away because I love Rear Window and I could talk about Rear Window. Mm-hmm any time of the day. Uh, and in fact, it's one of those movies I might want to break my rule on not repeating films to in order to talk about it again. Um, it, it's okay. Like, I understand. Because, <laughs> like, here's the thing. I love Hitchcock, but I understand that, like, you have already covered Hitchcock, and I am not the Hitchcock authority. Like, I yeah. am by no means, like, I haven't watched Rope. Yeah. Well, it, 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 well <laughs> it, from what I've been gathering, apparently not many people have either. And like, you're not, you're not alone. I was actually shocked by the amount of people who hadn't watched Rope. And I'm like, I thought that was the one that everybody watched. I There's thought, a lot of Hitchcock that I probably should have watched that I have not watched. Yeah. There was, um, there, there, the only reason I ended up watching most of his output before I did the series was because of, youthful obsession with the universal era films uh and then slowly deviating into the mgm and oselznik ones uh and the rko ones uh but that that's one of those things like i think we all have a director that we tend to get into early on anyway um yeah and so when it comes to when it comes to rear window though i the mainly mainly the reason i like talking about it with people is because some people have different readings on the movie and like, mm-hmm. and I always maintain it's not a movie about finding a murder, uh, confirming that somebody's a murderer. It's about a movie. It's a movie about how James Stewart doesn't want to marry Grace Kelly. That's the plot of the movie. That, <laughs> that is the plot of the movie. Yeah. It's all about, it's a, all about an infinite man sitting in a wheelchair, not realizing that he has like no reason not to marry Grace Kelly. And the whole movie is about him trying to convince himself that this woman is worth his time. <laughs> and I'm like, it's Grace Kelly. Like, why? You needed to cast somebody else in order to make this story plausible. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, but it's a great movie. Um, well, yeah. The, I mean, and that's also the point. Like, <laughs> it's Grace Kelly. Why wouldn't you? And it's like, that's, 
I don't know because I'm crazy. That's why. <laughs> it's 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 why when I watched Broadway Melody of 1936 with uh, Robert Taylor and Jack Benny, it has Eleanor Powell in it. It's her big debut, and the whole movie is about Robert Taylor going like, "No, no, Eleanor Powell, you need to go back home to regular New York and not New York City. You need to go home and forget about show business life." And I'm like, Robert Taylor. <laughs> movie it, it, well it, it is and it's i can't even say that jack's jack's the best part of it however as i've discussed jack's being used wrong and uh yes. but uh but the other part of it is it's like robert powell that's eleanor powell or robert 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 taylor that's eleanor powell hi robert eleanor that's eleanor powell what what the fuck's your problem like <laughs> um but um at any rate the shop around the corner, though you making that selection, this is a film that a lot of people love. Like this is a beloved all-timer classic in the same vein as Casablanca. This is a movie that people watch at Christmas time. What is your first experience with the shop around the corner? So, uh, I think you saw my Facebook post the other day. One of my comfort movies is You've Got Mail. I love You've Got Mail. It was one of the very first movies that like, you know, I'm a kid, I'm watching like cartoons and like stupid stuff. And like my mom, when my mom watches a movie, she becomes obsessed with a movie. And she'll watch it over and over and over again. Like, I'm not kidding, sometimes every day in a week. And, uh, your mom, your mom's like with other movies, like I am with the Irishman. So it's totally fine. You know? Right. So like, she'll do that and then she'll just discard it and like never watch it again. And, <laughs> oh, well, okay. Now the comparison ends. Cause I'll never throw away the Irishman. Right. <laughs> and so like, uh, that when she kind of like stopped watching, you've got mail. I was like, well, well, well hold on. Let's let's watch this again. <laughs> <laughs> and so I I kind of say it's like my first adult movie because like I was a kid I was watching like Disney movies yeah. and so um from that like skip fast forward like ten fifteen years I decide I'm gonna buy You've Got Mail because my mom has threatened to take all like keep all of the movies and not let me watch you've got mail and i was like no i must have it (laughs) and (laughs) so i'm watching the bonus features because back before streaming we had bonus features and (laughs) that sounds like that sounds expensive and it sounds like not everybody would sign off on it and it sounds like it's so cool that it should be around but nobody wants it around anymore why is that why (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, I, so yeah, I liked it because, like, okay, so there was uh, Nora Ephron mm-hmm. who like, does tons of like. I don't think people realize that like Nora Ephron has done like all of the classic ninety movies that you nineties movies that you think of. She has an appreciation factor up the wazoo from a lot of people in my circle, yes. and I and I do too. I'm not a I'm not a mega fan, but I do respect the hell out of her. But I like I I don't think people. like really no romantic and like comedic directors as much as they would like action and like horror and like all of those other genres. I I don't think. I I think unless they're a male voice in rom-com, they're not going to be just Nancy Myers is the one that I first found out about. 
to be honest. Yeah. Um, I didn't even hear about Penny Marshall for years. Yeah. Even yeah. though we watched Big, but yeah. I didn't know Penny Marshall directed Big. I just knew that Tom Hanks got big. Right. <laughs> That's the plot. <laughs> right. And so I was watching the bonus features with her um, talking about the movie as they're watching the movie. I don't remember what that's called. Commentary. I don't know. Yeah. Commentary. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm watching the commentary and like, I don't know why it never was like brought to my attention before. Cause it says it in like the credits that it's, you got mail is based on the shop around the corner. Yep. And, but she's talking about it. I'm like, what this was a movie before and i'm like <laughs> why have i not known about this so i freak the frick out and look it up i buy it like i don't remember how i how i first came about it about it but i did buy it and uh yeah so then i watched watched it freaking loved it then i found out there's like more and oh, so yeah. i was like had to watch everything i could i wasn't aware that there was a broadway play until like doing more research for this and i was like oh yeah there's a broadway play funny so, that you should mention that because that's a good starting point for us i mean what we're gonna keep but yeah anyway so you you found yeah. the film via you got mail and mm -hmm. why does it still stick with you even i would ask beyond the you got mail comparison why does this version stick with you i think it's because and like so my, I love romance, but I don't like it. I hate it when it's done wrong, mm -hmm. but I love the thought of someone intellectually matching with someone because I think like they sit, like it says, like you just scratch the surface of people, but like, I, I think getting to know someone by their words, their letters, uh, gets to you get to know the real person there and I think like even before you know you look at their looks or whatever I think that really resonated with me even though I was a really cute kid I loved <laughs> so, like, you know but like but I really liked that message and so I just really thought that yeah I yeah. was like that that is what I want I want somebody that would like me for me and who I am at my core. Oh, well, that's a good sentiment to have on it. And that's a good, yeah, that's a, actually one of the ideals that shop around the corner has that is still admirable to this day is that idea of a, uh, I don't want to say an idealized romance, but a magical romance that still seems tangible and, might definitely seems more tangible given the social media age, but it is still like that fanciful notion that still feels within the realm of reality as opposed to other tropes that have kind of faltered and frailed. Um, uh, yours, yours, your interaction with you've got, uh, not you've got mail, uh, the shop around the corner. <laughs> um, although the name in of the shop in you've got mail is the shop around the corner. <laughs> um, yeah. In homage, of course. Yeah. Um, my interaction with the shop around the corner is not that um, idyllic and hopeful. It actually came out of technical acumen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
my exposure to it. So my my history with Lubitsch starts with To Be or Not to Be. That's where it starts. That's where um, and that's where it kind of halted for a couple of years, uh, for for many years actually. And then in college, I was preparing to make a black and white movie about old time radio, and the cinematographer of the film suggested the shop around the corner as the uh uh color palette and the color scheme that he wanted to work with in terms of because black and white does have a color scheme like it's it's about contrast and the 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 look itself because we didn't want to make a movie that was specifically too noirish is what i recall the discussion being um this was also in an era where i was still drinking and smoking weed so i have no idea if this is all exactly what happened verbatim but i remember the shop around the corner was a film he said you should watch the film um cut to last year at christmas time the secret history of hollywood film club run by adam roach they show a movie each week and at christmas time he's like we're doing all christmas movies and uh one of the films that was selected he t- he did all four of them in secret he didn't tell us what he was picking each week for that week one of them was shopping around the corner we i was amazed by the interaction with the film I was amazed by Frank Morgan in the movie. Um, And I was amazed by how everything still worked. And I found that eight to nine years is a long time that passes where your heart starts to become a little bit less hardened by hard edge cynicism. And you're just like, oh, this love plot does work for me. Fuck. All right. Yeah, yeah. I'm susceptible to it like everybody. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, because (laughs) it is slightly like, I think it has enough realism to it that makes it like plausible. I think because it's centered around human, true humanity. It's not Mm -hmm. centered around sentiment. It's centered around realistic human interaction done in a fanciful notion set in this i want to say it's idyllic setting but the issue that one thing i was going to talk about with the film is is that so you've seen you've seen to be or not to be as well correct hope yes i have so we talked about we kind of talked about this prior to recording the to be or not to be episode but in the commentary for to be or not to be, they talk about the fact that uh, that movie ends up subverting a lot of the imagery in here and turns it up on its head, like into a more realistic uh, dark world. So it's yeah. almost like the shop around the corner got invaded by the Nazis is what to be or not to be. is. Um, my fascination with this movie comes at a couple of levels. One is obviously what we talked about, which is the solid romance story that works for the the different viewer in different ways the 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 strong cast and also yes this is like an interesting duology with to be or not to be if we're looking at lubitsch basically taking a look at the environment he grew up in um yeah. uh, as we discussed on the to be or not to be episode he grew up the son of a tailor and the shop around the corner ends up being very much in in the case of Lubitsch, arguably the closest we get to the insight of his life growing up as the son of a tailor. Um, and now the difference being that the shop around the corner centers around a leather goods shop. 
And mm-hmm. but it's the idea of that small shop community, that community vibe. Um and this movie is based on a play as you mentioned earlier by Miklos Laszlo. Um the 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 um I do not know if I'm pronouncing this title right, so if I get it wrong to anybody listening in the UK, I or the or in Paris or wherever, I don't I'm sorry. Uh <laughs> Parf- parfumery? Parfumery, yeah, parfumery, <laughs> I would say. Uh, it pre- which is a play that premiered at the Pest Theater in Budapest in 1937. Yeah. Um, and then Laszlo comes to New York and the play is adapted by Samuelson, uh, Samson Rafelson uh, for Ernst Lubitsch. Um, now, the... Uh, the 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 production info on this film it was kind of hard to find anything of substance yeah. so there is a new Blu-ray that you can pick up from Warner Archive uh, for relatively inexpensive and you do get a theatrical trailer you get some Lux Radio Theater attachments to it but you don't get any special features beyond that there's no commentary by a film historian there is no uh, behind the scenes featurette which I mean it does seem like it's weird for a movie that this beloved does not have anything like that attached to it but there are things to talk about in the production before we go into the plot um, first of all this is a this is it within the breakout time for um, uh, a couple of the stars of the film um, why don't we start with Margaret Sullivan because she hasn't been mentioned at all on this show and she has yeah. uh, she has an interesting history yeah. one, one that I'm aware uh that has uh, I'm only aware tangentially because I have not watched a ton of her movies beyond the mortal storm and this film, but yeah, she was apparently not the easiest person to get along with. <laughs> right. Um, and I can't think of anything that I've watched her in besides the shop around the corner. The more, so. the mortal storm is one I would check out. It's also with James Stewart. Um, but Let's start with her that she's born in Virginia, daughter of a wealthy stockbroker, suffers from painful muscular weakness in the legs that prevent her from walking, uh, and then recovers and kind of gains a very uh, adventurous uh, perspective on the world who uh, was not really uh, interested in hanging out with the same class of people that she was growing up with, so she preferred to hang around in more poor areas. Um, she attends boarding school uh, at Chatham Institute, now Chatham Hall, uh, and she moves to Boston and she studies dance at the Boston, Boston Denishon studio and against her parents' wishes, which seems to be the norm for every actor of this era. The parents go, now I forbid you to be an actor. And the kid goes, oh, yeah, dad, watch me fucking do it. <laughs> And that, like Jack, actually has that same history because his parents said we don't want you hanging around with a bunch of vaudeville bums. <laughs> um, and uh, so she goes to study drama at the Copley Theater. Um, and in this time, when she succeeds in getting parts through the Harvard Dramatic Society, working her way through the university players on Cape Cod. She meets a couple people there. Uh, first, she meets uh, Mr. Henry Fonda. Um, and uh, the other one that she meets 
as a certain fucking suave debonair motherfucker who stars in this movie. Um, she meets Jimmy Stewart. Hooray, Jimmy finally made it into the Ballyhoo. I thought I left him back in Shamley where he belonged, but that dirty old man won't leave us alone. Um, uh, actually, the interesting thing about Jimmy Stewart, as I told you before we recorded, but I'll tell it to the audience because they didn't hear this. Um, I've talked about Jimmy Stewart for so long and done that silly imitation of it. I have not talked about Jimmy Stewart's biography. We have not gotten the Jimmy Stewart story on the on the show, Hope. Would you like to sit down and listen to the Jimmy Stewart story? Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. He was in the Glenn Miller story, so, like, why not have the Jimmy Stewart story? Well, it should have happened years ago. Why hasn't anybody made a biopic of me? They can make one of Stan and Laurel. They can make one. They made two of Hitch. They made two Hitchcock movies, but not one Jimmy movie? Fuck this world. Um... No, um, Jimmy was born James Maitland Stewart on May 20th, 1908 in Indiana, Pennsylvania, the eldest son and only son, uh, oldest child and only son born to Elizabeth Ruth and Alexander Maitland Stewart. Um, uh, Stewart's father ran a family business, uh, J.M. Stewart and Company Hardware Store, and Jimmy's father had hoped that Stewart would take over as an adult after attending Princeton University, as there was their tradition. So Stewart has already, like, I have high expectations. Like, if my family finds out that I haven't lived up to this, I'm fucked. And he's raised Presbyterian, goes through this expected lifestyle, but Stewart's mother was a pianist. Uh-oh. Somebody in the family is an artist. It's going to rub off on somebody. And naturally, it rubs off on Jimmy along with the rest of the family because music was a very important part of their family. Uh, when a customer at the store was unable to pay his bill, Stewart's father accepted an old accordion as payment, and Stewart learned to play the instrument with the help of the local barber. Uh, and then his accordion became a fixture off stage during his acting career. So he's kind of like... The prototypical Weird Al Yankovic. The only difference is, is that he didn't have a song like Albuquerque. If he did, we wouldn't be talking about Jimmy Stewart, the actor. We'd be talking about Jimmy Stewart, the accordion player. Um, as is such, fate does not have that in store for him. What it does have in store for him is that he attends uh, the uh, Mercerburg Academy Prep School in the fall of 1953 um, and his father didn't believe that he would be accepted to Princeton if he attended a public high school, which is why he goes there. And he participates in a variety of extracurricular activities. And he's a member of the Glee Club. He's a member of the John Marshall Literary Society. Um, he was relegated, unfortunately, to, to third-tier football team due to his slender physique because they don't like fucking skinny noodle people in, on the football team, which rightfully so. I probably could have broken my fucking leg 500 times. And uh, so he makes his first onstage appearance as an actor at Mercerburg as Bouquet in the play The Wolves in 1928. And during his summer breaks, he returns to Indiana, working first as a brickloader and then as a magician's assistant. Magicians always seem to be really good actors. <laughs> There's Steve Martin, uh, not really an actor, but Johnny Carson, a magician, also became a very well-known television personality. And fucking me. I know fucking magic. Hey, Rocky, watch me pull a rabbit out of my fucking hat. And yep. um, now, 
Uh, but he got scarlet fever that turned into a kidney infection, and he had to be taken out of school in 1927, which delayed his graduation until 1928. Uh, he remained passionate about other elements like a of, of life like aviation, uh, but he abandoned his visions of becoming a pilot when his father steered him towards Princeton. Um, now, he's awarded a scholarship after Princeton— for graduate studies in architecture for his thesis on airport design. But he chose instead to join the university players and intercollegiate summer stock company performing in West Falmouth, Massachusetts on Cape Cod. From here, the university players um, in the group, you have Henry Fonda, Margaret Sullivan, and Jimmy Stewart. They all make their way out to Hollywood. Jimmy's... Uh, trajectory, which we'll go into more detail if we ever go into some of the earlier works of Jimmy Stewart, which we definitely will because amongst his first roles, uh, major roles in a film, uh, not where he's uh, the the super top build, but like mm -hmm. a, one of his earliest significant roles is David Graham in After the Thin Man. He plays a villain in the movie. Mm -hmm. uh, spoilers for the Thin Man movies, but come on, guys. It's not about the mystery. It's about watching William Powell and Myrna Loy play detectives. And I, and that's all I want. Jimmy Stewart's fine in it, but I know who I'm there to watch. I'm here to watch Powell, Loy, and that beautiful fucking dog. Um, Asta, that's the name. Know it, learn it, love it. Um, but... He has. Uh, he starts off in a film like Art Trouble, where it's a short and he's uncredited, and then he goes into The Murder Man. Next time he love is his first time where he's second build. Speed, uh, where he plays the role of Terry Martin, uh, is his first starring role. It's his first time where he's top build. Um, as he's working up the ranks, mm -hmm. um, he gets a movie called Mr. Well, no, actually, not before. Before the first, before the big Capra movie, he gets another one called "You Can't Take It With You," which is another big Capra movie, but it is not talked about in the same light that "It Happened One Night" or "Mr. Smith Goes to Fucking Washington" is talked about uh, in the grand scheme of film history. Because yes, 1939 is where he really makes it big. His year is really big. Cope. This is his lineup made for each other. The Ice Follies of 1939 <laughs> with Joan Crawford. I have never seen this movie. Hope this looks awesome. This is, it's all about ice skaters and relationship issues. I kind of want to see this. <laughs> I wonder if it's like the Ice Princess, but better. Um, and uh, then he does It's a Wonderful World, which is not It's a Wonderful Life. It's called It's a Wonderful World. And it's a romantic screwball comedy mystery with him and Carol Lomb, or not Carol Lombard, Claudette Colbert. Blech. But it is directed by W.S. Van Dyke, who was the primary director on the Thin Man series. But then he gets Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. This is the incredible yep. story of a simple man elected to Congress to be a patsy and ends up being a hero. And in the process, proving two things. Number one, Claude Rains is an incredible actor. And two, God damn it, Claude Rains must be destroyed by the end of this movie. <laughs> uh, and then he also does the movie Destry Rides Again, which is a, uh, a, a seminal Western film from George Marshall, co-starring Marlene Dietrich. Um, and then Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is actually a film where 
He's nominated for the Oscar. He wins the New York Film Critics Circle Award for Best Actor, uh, but he is uh, shunned for it um, because the winner uh, in 1939 goes to Robert Donat for Goodbye, Mr. Chips, which is it's this is a tough decision for most people because Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is a classic. I think we all like it. Have you seen Goodbye, Mr. Chips? <laughs> No, I'm not. Robert Donat will make you fucking cry. <laughs> okay. And that's why he wins. Um okay. and so but it's, so it's like one of those things where I'm just like this this year is too perfect to movies. Can we just give it to like the worst actor of that year and even the playing field? <laughs> um it, So you want the Oscars and the Razzies at this in the in the room. Look, it's unfair because <laughs> this year is too big. The good the good news in this is that we have plenty of options. I'm yeah. not saying you give it to Jack Benny for Man About Town because that's unrealistic and I'm not asking for the moon here. We, we, um, we all know he deserves it for the one in 1942. But you could give it to Basil Rathbone for playing Sherlock Holmes in The Hound of the Baskervilles, which some are going to argue is not even close to the top movie of that year. But I'd argue that they're wrong and then I would proceed to yell at them for an hour in a kind way, not a mean way, <laughs> but ye yell in the sense that I would speak passionately and loudly about why that film's perfect until they get so bored that they just agree. And, yeah. <laughs> and that's how, and, and to quote Adam Sandler in uncut gems, this is how I win. Um, and, uh, but the following year he gets a big year, a big, big year mm -hmm. as the mortal storm, no Time for Comedy, The Philadelphia Story, in which I basically win an Oscar for not winning the year before and also one of the greatest drunk scenes in cinema history. It's really fucking great. I'm drunk with Katherine Hepburn, and I just let fucking loose. The Jimmy Stewart you keep hearing on this fucking podcast, that's me for about a good 20 minutes in The Philadelphia Story. So if you want to see it visualized, it's fucking there. Um <laughs> And yeah, he wins the Academy Award for Best Actor. Uh, but this same year, earlier on, he went. he's in The Shop Around the Corner. Now, his good friend Margaret Sullivan, her career and her journey uh, coming into Hollywood uh, is, uh, is kind of scattered uh, from what I've been able to look up. Um, and now I'm sure she has a much bigger history in regards to cinema legacy. But um, uh, she... She gets to Hollywood in 1933 on her 24th birthday. Her debut comes the same year in Only Yesterday. She chose her scripts carefully. Um, she did not like her performance in her first movie. Um, and she saw herself in the early rushes and was so appalled she tried to buy herself out of her contract for $2,500, but Universal, who she was working with at the time, uh, refused it. She follows these, this role with Little Man What Now?, uh, she goes into So Red the Rose by King Vidor, uh, which was preceded one year uh, by one year the publication um, uh, of Margaret Mitchell's um, best-selling book um, called Gone with the Wind. Um, and uh, the, uh, the novel's adaptation for four years, but it also deals with the South in the aftermath of the Civil War. Um, sounds like both of these stories are not worth my time. I like King Vidor, but I've never seen Sir Red the Rose. Um, 
I uh, did not know it existed until now. And now I've got to question whether or not I want to sit down with this. <laughs> um, uh, but um, she reunites with Jimmy Stewart for the shop worn angel in 1938. Stewart in it plays a sweet, naive Texan soldier on his way to Europe uh, who marries Sullivan on the way. Uh, and then her, uh, she breaks into other films like the shining hour, uh, where she plays the suicidal sister-in-law to Joan Crawford. And then we get her up to the shop around the corner. Now, I don't know how much research you did into this hope, but I was surprised to hear that people had issues with her. I didn't realize she had such a temper. Yeah, she. I didn't really do a lot of research into her filmography, but it, I did kind of like skim her bio a little bit. It sounds like she, uh, um, yeah, she sounds like she was a very angry person <laughs> sometimes uh, and would have outbursts, um, but... But I, I, don't, I don't know, like she also, I don't understand her, why she went to Hollywood in some respect, because she had a disdain for Hollywood uh, from what I've read. Yeah. And so she, I mean, she preferred plays. Yeah, she 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 had a huge presence in Broadway. Although in 1932, the year before, she, a year a few years before she really gets into Hollywood, she has a long string of flops on Broadway, which are "If Love Were All," "Happy Landing," "Bad Manners," and a play called "Chrysalis" with um, a certain great Humphrey Bogart. Um, not not even not great actors, just the great Humphrey Bogart. Um, but all the performances Sullivan gives in them are praised. Um, so it does seem like she preferred the stage because she seemed more home with it. Right. Um, and, and she like, was turning down contracts from Paramount and Columbia too. So right. in her, I, I was reading that her, in her contract negotiations, she actually had it put in that she could return to Broadway or return to theater when she was not working on a play, which I thought was interesting just because like, it's not impossible to get that into your contract, but it, it was difficult. I, she's not the only actor who would have had this power, but it does seem like she had a bit of preference when it came to where she preferred to utilize her talents. Um, but Jimmy Stewart has said in interviews that he enjoyed working with her thoroughly. It does seem like Sullivan made her, made him feel a lot more relaxed. The Stewart persona that we know today, uh, consists, well, it has a couple of layers. I think the one we are the most referencing and the one that I'm always making fun of, um, is, uh, the good natured, nerdy fella <laughs> uh or the uh soft-spoken uh average joe like a typical american like mr smith goes to washington almost would be a cipher character if it weren't for the small touches that jimmy stewart gives to it like it is yeah. a brilliant performance 
because Jimmy Stewart embodies an all-American fella, and then he adds certain elements to it that make it unique only to him. Like, if you tried to remake Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, it's one of those few instances where I'd tell you, stop trying to remake classics. Because I you, I normally yeah. don't care. Yeah. But this is a case where I'd be like, no, 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 no. Yeah. Theater, fine. Film, no. Um, and like, because a play is different. But, um... You, but they work. They ended up working together a couple of times. They work up. To, they work together in next time we loved, next time we love, um, and which she had strong reservations about the story, but she had to work off her damned contract, as the quote. Um, and uh, she actually pitches Stewart, um, who uh, was not only friends with Harry F- Henry Fonda. Both of them were friends with Henry Fonda. In fact, Sullivan's first husband was Henry Fonda. So Henry, yeah. So Henry Fonda, making his way around the scene, just going like, "Look, you know, there's a, there's just only so much I can do before I finally enter the Ballyhoo Review or whatever the hell it is." Um, and yes, they Stewart gets brought into Next Time We Love by Sullivan. <laughs> Uh, and then Stewart was a contract player at MGM by 1936, but he was only getting these B movies. Um, and uh, the, the, their collaborations start becoming a noticeable one. Next time they work together is the shopworn angel. Then they work in the shop around the corner. And then finally their final collaboration is the mortal storm. So it is within this 1936 to 1940 period where Sullivan and Stewart are a proven combination and I found this interesting. It's a quote about the shopworn angel. Louis B. Mayer said, well, Louis B. Mayer said this, why they're red hot when they get in front of a camera. <laughs> I don't know what the hell it is, but it sure jumps off the screen. And then Walter Pigeon, who was part of the love triangle in the shopworn angel goes, I really felt like the odd man out in that one. It was really all Jimmy and Maggie. It was so obvious he was in love with her. He came uh, absolutely alive in his scenes with her, playing with a conviction and a sincerity I never knew him to summon away from her. Uh, so, yeah, they have a chemistry that is, it's. I think it primarily comes from Sullivan going to Jimmy, look, relax, be a nervous fucking wreck that's lovable enough to pass the ability to speak a sentence without stuttering. And he goes, all right, gotcha. <laughs> and that's, that's how movie magic is born. And arguably with the shop around the corner, it's, it is magic. It is absolute magic. It is like, that is a chemistry that works solely based off of traditional romantic comedy tropes that we know today, only because they had to get established by people like Lubitsch refined Mm -hmm. by Billy Wilder. And then the ante gets upped over the course of between the seventies and the nineties. And then you get your Smiths, your Apatow's bringing in their version to it. All of it stems into here. Or as you alluded to somebody like Nora Ephron looking at a concept like this and like, well say what if this, but email and you get, uh, you know what I'll do? I'll get America's dad and the gal that everybody likes to see America's dad with in the same movie together doing shop around the corner and it'll fucking work for people. And I'll throw in Dave Chappelle. Cause why the hell not? And yeah. 
I loved it. <laughs> it's it, I, I every time I've 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 only watched the movie a couple times, but the all, every time I've seen it, when I see Dave Chappelle, I'm like, oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know who the heck Dave Chappelle was. Oh like, God, I, did you? Uh, did you? It, side topic. Did you see the new A Star Is Born? <laughs> I have not because. I I'm I'm scared too. Okay, no, it's really good. It is really good. I I did enjoy it a lot. I think it's actually the best version of the country star version of that story because it's not about yeah. actors, but it is about musicians. And if I'm going to choose between Streisand and Cooper, uh, Streisand and Gaga, I'm going with Gaga. Um, but Dave Chappelle's in the movie, and I didn't know that prior to going into the movie. So I'm walking into this movie, and I'm sitting down, I'm watching it, I'm going like, right on, The Shallow. And then all of a sudden, Dave Chappelle pops up on screen. I'm like, the fuck are you doing here? Yeah. <laughs> and then he ends up giving this wonderful like supporting performance. I'm like, oh, no, no, you're, you were totally meant to be here the whole time. Sorry, I didn't mean to yeah. yell. Carry on. Right, right. <laughs> um, so, kind of what he does, yeah. right? Yeah, he's just so, like, I'll show up wherever I fucking want to. I don't care. Um, but anyway, I think now we should get into the plot for Shop Around the Corner. Um, mm -hmm. uh, a couple of notes for the production of this film. Uh, Lubitsch was known for glamour, uh, elegance when it came to the costume design. But Lubitsch is trying to tap into this smaller town community vibe and really dig into this community feel in Budapest. And also the, the film does touch into an, the allegories surrounding the depression and tough times finding a job. Um, yeah. And so he actually went to the length of ordering that Margaret Sullivan had purchased a dress and she bought this dress for a dollar ninety eight. He ordered it to be left out in the sun to bleach and altered to fit poorly. Cause I want her to feel like she didn't have this tailor made by some elegant fucking tailor like my father might have been. Except no, he wasn't. He was a poor tailor. Um yeah. now so he you know, Margaret, it's got to look very, very fucking tattered. But not so tattered that Jimmy Stewart wouldn't look at you and go, say, why wouldn't yeah. I hang out with you? Um and and consequently, you need to be confident enough to say, you know what? I don't care if my dress looks terrible. I'm a strong, confident woman in Budapest. I can do whatever I want. Um, and <laughs> so that, like, so something like that is another detail that Lubitsch brings into it. And we're going to be talking about the rest of the cast as we go along into the plot. But let's get right off the bat where we open up in the shop around the corner. Um, we are at the corner of Matichek and Company's shop. Um, hmm. We're at the shop. Hey, Hope, we're yes. at the shop around the corner. We are. Yeah. I, it's not the shop uh, next to the corner. It's the shop around the corner. <laughs> did you look up Balta Street and Andersen Street, though? I never did, no. <laughs> they do not intersect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, close to each other <laughs> it's, it's Sam, samson rafelson is like ernst hey ernst ernst do you do you know that these do you know that these two geographically don't line up look samson two things first of all 
This is a romantic, magical story, so therefore it would make sense that the shop takes place in a place that technically doesn't exist. And number right. two, who's going to care? It's not like they're going to come up with a crazy invention where you can hear audio shows inside of a small little brick in your pocket, and then years later, some some dork is going to talk to a, to another person over the internet, and they're going to discuss the logistic issues of my movie. That this... That sounds impossible, Samson. Just write the fucking thing. <laughs> but but I, I just looked it up just to see like yeah. if the streets existed. They do exist. Mm -hmm. But they're but, not in the conjunctive area. No, yeah, it's not. But, but, but they are pronounceable. <laughs> yeah, they, they are pronounceable, yes. My, my, my take on that is that right off the bat, this movie feels like a magic trick. Yes. Of not just look and feel but also human emotion it kind of makes sense that Lubitsch with the sense of humor that he does goes like this is a story about lovely people that happened absolutely nowhere because none of that exists I'm Lubitsch um, <laughs> yeah. like, so sorry to burst your bubble <laughs> right it, it's kind of weird I mean for Lubitsch to have this movie is so not his usual flavor yeah Let's talk about that for a second. He's um, he pulls a lot back in this movie. Yeah, it's very and, saccharine, and but it's in a good way. Yeah, like it's more realistic. So I think like having like little touches like that, like it's like let's be un like let's have a fantasy world, but in a realistic setting, and make it as real as possible. Yeah. And also like, I was going to point this out and maybe it's because I'm a dude. There are less sex jokes in this movie than any other yeah. Lubitsch movie I've ever seen. And I, I should clarify my Lubitsch knowledge is not as broad as it should be given the fact that Lubitsch made one of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah. Truth be right. told, I haven't seen a lot of his silent work. Most of his sound work that I have seen um, I've only gone through once or twice and I've been rediscovering within the last couple of years, except for Nanachka. Um, oh my gosh. You haven't seen Nanachka? No, I've seen Nanachka. No, oh, I've seen, okay. no, that's one of the ones I have seen. Okay, um, but like ones that I haven't seen, uh, uh, Clooney Brown is one I haven't seen. Uh, and yeah. I, I need to watch it because like one of his last. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of his last. And I give Jennifer Jones a hard time a lot and I really need to start being more fair and not making blind statements about actors whose work I've only watched a couple times and just never bothered to further elaborate on. Uh, but no, but uh, yeah, no, Ninochka I've seen a bunch. Um, but the, uh, and then Heaven Can Wait is one that I've watched. Um, uh, I don't think I've Heaven can wait. Heaven can wait with Donna Michi is such a lovely looking movie. Um, and then I have seen uh, Design for a Living. And uh, but yeah, Lubitsch is a director whose work that I primarily know through the Lubitsch touch as it has been described to me through the films that I have seen and through the critical analyses. And it has to do primarily with innuendo being applied to these sophisticated stories in order to tell an adult tale that won't get slapped down by the censors and shop around the corner 
I think has one salacious thing that happens in it, and it's mainly a plot driving device. It's not um, a, an incident, um, yeah. a traditional Lubitsch incident, yeah. um, or at least it feels that way to me. Mm-hmm. Now, another thing that I want to bring up about the film, and I think you notice this right the, the moment you see it, this isn't just one of the greatest romantic comedies of all time. It's also one of like the first workplace comedies to ever exist. Yeah. Um, I got in rewatching it a couple times this week. Like I really wore myself into the film. Uh, I kept getting a couple different vibes. First of all, I was like, you know, I want a Matta Chicken Company sitcom right now, yeah. like yesterday. Okay. Uh, yes. And also the the way the way Clara gets her job. Feels yeah. so close to the first couple of episodes of Cheers with Diane getting her job at the bar. <laughs> uh, and the difference being Cheers extended it for 10 fucking years <laughs> and kept me all, kept us all waiting, wondering, yeah, hoping. But will they, won't they? Yeah. You know, but it, you know what? Actually, I have the theory that it didn't matter because all we really wanted to know is how Norm's day was. That's all that mattered. Oh, yes, exactly. <laughs> How was life in the fast lane, Norm? And we'd get an answer and made me fucking happy. Um, uh, but yeah, no, the, yeah. we get the we word. What was that? We, yeah, we were there for Norm. Yeah, exactly. We were Norm. Occasionally Cliff. Love, love story is not important. Norm is important. Nor, Norm is always important. Long live Norm. Uh, <laughs> I want to get... Uh, <laughs> The but no that that we get this workplace comedy vibe to it to the point where we meet all the different employees of Matichik and Company. First, we meet Pirovich, and he's who's played by Felix Bressart, who I talked about in the "To Be or Not to Be" episode, where in "To Be or Not to Be," he's giving one of the most emotional performances in his career. So good. Here, he's very much the the comic relief. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the the sympathetic comic relief. Mm-hmm. Bressart has this way of making you feel like if I don't give you a hug, you might die of lack of love. Uh, mm-hmm. And I need to give you a hug because your mustache seems sad just as you seem sad. Um, but he's mm-hmm. got such a spirit in him. <laughs> I think of him as like, you know, I know Mad- Madich- Mr. Madichek is supposed to be like, the dad but he's the boss and so i feel like he's more like i feel like felix Bressart's more the dad and like guiding the characters like he knows it all yeah. he's just guiding the characters very very gently like so gently that like you can't really say that he's like they're someone they looked up to although it's clear they do yeah so. well i think purevich let me ask you this, because you were saying that he kind of like is a soft-spoken guide. Do you? I get the feeling that this characterization has now been expanded into the loudmouth sidekick character in most yeah. rom-coms, like the best friend in romantic comedies. Yeah. Like he, yeah, um, yes. But like you have this trope in romantic comedies that. 
there is a sense of advice coming from outside to provide perspective for the lead character. Yeah. And I feel like nowadays it's more played by like an obnoxious character or like someone that, I mean, uh, I'm trying to think of. Just say the name Dane Cook and we'll be all good. No. <laughs> no, no, it's just it's just like an obnoxious character that like, and I'm thinking like even for women, there's like the women best friend type and then there's the man best friend. And it's always some obnoxious character that's just like, I don't know. It's not someone you would think would give good advice, but in the movies they give great advice. Right. But like. But in real life, you would never go to that person for advice. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually am trying to think of like, you know, I mean, like there are different variations on it too, but like Bill Hader gives good advice to Jason Siegel and forgetting Sarah Marshall or yeah. uh, I'm trying to think of like, I, yeah, you know, let's just go with Bill Hader for this one. <laughs> but, yeah. but yeah, Pirovich is not alone though. He's hanging out with, the hero of the movie, the actual hero of the movie. Yeah. You you know who he is. His name yes. is Pepe. Pepe Katona, played by William Tracy. Hope. Yeah. I fucking love this character. <laughs> he yes. has he has the greatest moments he, in this movie. <laughs> he is that crazy like best friend character though. Like he he's he's what Bressart's supposed yes. to be if this yes. was a 90s movie. Pepe yes. is living it. But Peppy yeah. is not Peppy is not the emotional core. Peppy is no. Peppy reminds me of Randall and Clerks. How if Randall is- had a grandfather that lived in Budapest. <laughs> How old is Peppy? Because like, is he supposed to be like fifteen? Like, I have no that- idea. <laughs> like, I think he's supposed to be fifteen, but I get a like twelve-year-old vibe from him. <laughs> I I could not find an exact age for Peppy. I think it's somewhere between 17 and 22 if I want to get specific. I don't want to think I don't want to think that Peppy is 17. I don't. He does say I am just a kid. Remember when they when they're talking about staying late, he goes like Mr. Mr. Clutch, do I have to He he asks Would that be under 16 though cuz like isn't in Germany aren't you an adult if you're 16? I guess so. So then technically he's around 15 or something like that. I mean Hopefully. I don't know. And also, this is Budapest, Hungary, at a certain point before the war. Don't yeah. they have a different established government than the, I? I yeah. God. Yeah. Is, is, um, is Pepe working illegally? I'm concerned now. <laughs> oh, kids could work all the time back well, in the day. <laughs> well, yeah, but like, is it one of those situations where he's not being forced to work full time or what? He he works his ass off for the Matichecks. He, he is. <laughs> He he is the poster boy example for the problem with the working class being treated the way it gets treated. <laughs> so here's my theory about Peppy. So if this had been like a TV show and we get to see like how this progressed or whatever, I think Peppy becomes Jimmy Stewart's character. Yeah. Because Jimmy Stewart, like in the letter that they're writing out, like when he's um, spoilers uh, being fired. Uh, we can he, hop around the plot on this. It's totally cool. <laughs> when he's being fired, uh, he's like, he, it says he starts out in Peppy's position. Yeah. And like, he's like a son to him and all this. And so I'm like, 
Peppy saved his life, so he is in effect now just becoming Jimmy Stewart's character. Right, because we don't know what happens to Frank Morgan after he hangs out with the with the new uh, with the new assistant boy. Um, but yeah. we, but I would imagine that if it was like the shop around the corner, the shop's still open. If that's like the name of the TV show, and then you have the reboot series years the later. Shop's still open. Yeah, and Jimmy Stewart's now older. He's now the same age as Mr. Matichek, and he's just like, now listen, Peppy, you've been working hard for years, but there's one thing you haven't learned about, and that's love. <laughs> and so the whole series is Peppy has to learn about love, or he can't inherit the shop. <laughs> that's the only plot I could come up with. <laughs> okay see i would actually like if this was an actual tv show and like this i would love the shop around the corner but i also kind of like like the idea and i was thinking about this while i was doing the rewatches of the shop around the corner you've got mail and in the good old summertime i would like to see what happens to the i don't even remember the character's name but the mr modicek character and his love interest because in this one there's no cheating. There's no suicide attempt. Just like they get married at the end. And I kind of want to know, like, do they just stop working at the store? What the frick happens after that? I, I, I mean, I don't know that 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 would be a good what if I guess we need to have you pitch it because I, I, I clearly was thinking like in terms of just the nostalgia factor only like that. Yeah. But it would be hard to make that movie or yeah. that TV show because it's in a music store for that one. And yeah. the, the rights to the music would be, uh, you'd have to have a musical every week. Yeah. And you'd have to get the rights to a song every week. Which That's as, just that. Which is, we all know, the reason why we don't have Happy Days, the complete series, is because of the music rights. So I don't want an issue with getting the rights to all the Shop Around the Corner TV shows years yeah. later with Shout Factory 5.0 trying to put out the series on Blu-ray. Um, assuming Blu-ray still exists after we've all been eliminated by the robots. <laughs> but um, The streams 24-7. <sighs> That'd be great. But I still want the physical. I still want the disc. That's the problem. I do, I, I, I do too. I, I was very, I was very disappointed that like, so my my mom bought Shop Around the Corner to put on her voodoo because she knows I like it, and I mooch off of my mom's voodoo. There you and go. So, so I was watching it, and I was like, "There's no bonus features." <laughs> it's it, it, here's the thing: your mom didn't mess up because. The no, version, I yeah, the, as I was saying earlier, the version that exists, we don't have a lot of special features either, which which does suck. Um, right. But, uh, but yeah, it, it would be nice to have more on this. But, I, you know, ultimately, it's it's we have the movie itself, um, right. and I think that's the most important part. Let's talk about the other coworkers in here, and we'll kind of run through the plot of this film. We just uh, got distracted by Peppy. Well, Peppy is Peppy. Peppy means to me what Batman means to other people. Like that, that he is the hero Matichek and company deserves, but not the one. Or the, he's the one it needs, but doesn't deserve. He is the Peppy Knight. Um, also, uh, take two on Peppy though. He could be Mister Vadas because Peppy actually came from the actor's real 
like nickname as a kid. Mm-hmm. So why that came about, I don't know. I don't know either. So we haven't talked about the actor playing him, but he's not a nobody. <laughs> yeah. And the reason why he's not a nobody is because technically I've talked about him before, but not directly. He's in Alfred Hitchcock's Mr. And Mrs. Smith, but the actor's name is William Tracy. Um, mm-hmm. This is the movie he's most known for is Pepe Katona. Um, but he is also in tobacco road, the John Ford movie. Um, He's in. Oh, I, thought you were gonna, I thought you were talking about Mr. Radish for a second because that's where the nickname came from. Oh no 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 no! I yeah no I I we're if we're still yeah. on Peppy. Peppy, gotcha. Yeah, if we're still on Peppy, but the actor playing him, William Tracy, he was like I said, he was in, uh, he, he was in uh, Tobacco Road. He's in Mr. Yeah. and Mrs. Smith. I think the thing I know him from the most, though, beyond this movie in terms of a movie I rewatch a lot is he's young Jerry in angels with dirty faces. He's Jerry as a child before Jerry grows up. Um, so he, he had kind of like a kiddish like demeanor about him and like a younger look that he kind of played into the hilt. He did unfortunately die very young at the age of 49. Um, but he's also, he's also in, he is also in a film that, I, you know, I don't think anybody forgets the character of Steve Eldridge in George Washington slept here. I just think he were not, we don't have to pay much attention to him because he's barely in the movie. But yeah. anyway, though, Mr. Vodish, though, here's a character. <laughs> this is a constant trope in a workplace comedy. And Vodish is the cream of the crop number one example for <laughs> for this kind of character played by Joseph Schildkraut um, who was an Austrian American actor uh, yeah. who won an Oscar for his role as Captain Dreyfus in the life of Emil Zola in 1937 uh, and then later was would play Otto Frank in the diary of Anne Frank um, so a lot of his roles end up primarily being of a more foreign nature uh i I don't know like i i I get the feeling that for all the good that is in this movie you do need one ultimate evil and valdish is the ultimate evil in this movie (laughs) yeah well it, it it's weird because like you see this kind of character played still today i mean the goings on of course that he is obviously in but for some reason it just feels more seedy yeah i think it's the way he's playing it he's playing it to like we've all worked a job where we've sucked up to the boss one more than once or like you know had ambition mm-hmm but Valdish takes it to the most annoying degree to the point where it becomes the example of what you do down the line. Well, I, I can understand being a suck up, but like to be that and to be fooling around with the boss's wife. Right. (laughs) Seems. I understand why I guess he's sucking up in that regard, but also like, he seems to be playing with it too. Cause like 
like the last interaction he has with Mr. Modicek is sort of like a like poke poke I'm fooling you like yeah okay that's interesting I didn't look into that let's let's talk about that because Valdish is I guess the question is is he a sociopath <laughs> is he <laughs> yes <I> think... <laughs> he, he's something because like <laughs> Valdish, he's something. <laughs> There's something messed up with him because, like, you can't you can't be fooling around with the boss's wife and then say, like, suck <laughs> up to him and then say that I um, enjoyed your dining room set. <laughs> right. Yeah. And say, last time I was there, like, dropping off this, it's like. He's giving the clue, like the reason why he's going off at at Jimmy Stewart is because he's he's thinking it's him because he's the only one that's there. And what doesn't, what I don't understand is in that moment, what, when he's saying that, why does it not click in Mr. Modicek's head that there was someone else that has been to his house? Because Mr. Modicek, as we're going to talk about, is wonderfully and brilliantly eccentric to a point where it does cloud his mind. And he does give a line in the movie that sort of explains it. But you're right. It does seem very hard. If it, it, This is not to, I, I, I should say full disclosure to the audience. I don't think either of us are trying to break the reality of the shop around the corner. <laughs> we're, we're just pointing out that this is interesting given how on the nose Valdish is with his behavior that Modicek wouldn't notice it. I think honestly that Mr. Modicek has gotten more clues to why it could be Stewart because as we meet Krolik, played by Jimmy Stewart, by by fucking May, um uh he is he has had dinner with Mr. Modicek and Mrs. Modicek. Right. He ha- I mean I understand why. It's just like I I don't, I think it goes to show how ignorant Mr. Modicek is of his employees' personal lives. Because every day before they come in, Vadish has this, is, he's like a baby dad, except in reverse. What's it called? <laughs> a, 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 man, a man baby. Yeah, a man, <laughs> man baby. He, He's a sugar mama in reverse. He's he's the he's the boy. Oh oh yeah oh uh, um, yeah. not a gigolo. What do you? Yeah, gigolo. Yeah, is close. yeah, yeah. That was my that because that's my question. One of my questions that I have eternally is like, it seems like he's she's buying him expensive things, but is she giving him straight cash yeah. on the table? Yeah, I, yeah and I, I oh shoot, I forgot. Like I looked up how much it was at one point, but it was like. Yeah. Uh, oh god and it's like in uh the the currency doesn't exist anymore uh pingu it but it was not cheap like which is why he is upset and so like but who out of all of them is coming in dressed amazing <laughs> mr Bobber. all the rest of them are wearing like you know what you would expect uh, someone making like an average salary would make. Yeah, for ma- that 
Yeah. And he's coming in in like fur freaking coats and shit. Sharp, like, smart suits, a cane. He's got a yeah. fucking cane that he brings yeah. to work. The hell. <laughs> yeah. And it looks extra. Like he just looks extra. It, it, it's one thing to bring a walking stick like Pepe does later on. It's another thing to bring in a fucking cane. Like, it, <laughs> Ooh, well, is that the transition that Pepe is Mr. Vadish because Oh. But, but, but Hope, is <laughs> Pepe... I'm just going my crazy. I, no, no, you're fair. Here, no, but here's my follow-up. If my Batman analogy is correct, is is Pepe a situation where he either dies a hero or he lives long enough to see himself become the villain? Because if that's the case, then yeah, he does become Valdish, and that scares me. And yeah. I want to imagine that Pepe went on to free all the fellow slackers, where they could get all the free slushies going forward. <laughs> I, I don't understand, like, maybe they just, like, didn't have a name for Peppy, and so one of the actors, oh, what's the, Mr. Valdez, what's his name again? Uh, uh, the, the actor who played Mr. Valdez? Yeah. Oh, uh, Joseph Sheldkraut. Uh, yeah. Joseph Sheldkraut. Joseph, so, like, did Joseph Sheldkraut just say, like, hey, my name was Peppy back in the day? Like, name him that. <laughs> Look, Ernst and Samson here. Um, yeah, you need a you need a name for the annoying boy. You can't just call him boy because that means he has no character. But if you give him a name like Peppy, it would make more sense. And what's more, he can make fun of me. He can make fucking fun of me. By the very end of the scene, he's going to be able to help Jimmy Stewart kick me down into the floor. Like, isn't this fucking grand? Um, yeah, I, that's. I mean. It would actually make sense that Lubitsch would involve the community of his actors and co-op. He would work with his actors that closely to make to. He would definitely take a suggestion like that. I would imagine. Um, yep. But we should talk about. We we should move into though. First of all, what Krolik is discussing how he's had dinner with. He yeah. does to discuss how he has had dinner with the Matichek's and he is feeling a little indigestion because he's had too much goose liver. Now, I wanted to only bring this up before we speed along through this plot because I thought at first when rewatching, I'm like, is that a, that's not an alcohol reference. It no, it's about goose liver, eating goose liver. Goose liver is so expensive. Yeah. Because ducks, faux gras, ducks, and geese are expensive to raise. They mature slowly and eat a lot more food, especially in the last weeks of their lives when they're force-fed. So that's why when you eat goose liver, you're eating expensive food. And the indication is is that he's eating at the boss's house. He's... I don't think Krolik is trying to necessarily advance so much as he's... It's interesting because I don't think he's... He's a, he's a ladder climber, but he's not the same as Valdish. It's a different, it's a more responsible ladder climbing. Like he's, he's earned it through hard work. Yes, exactly. Whereas Valdish has earned it through nailing Mrs. Matterchick. And yeah, not to put too fine a point on it, but we, uh, we get the entrance of Mr. Matterchick played by the legendary Frank Morgan, because this is not his most famous role. I think we're all aware of what his most famous role is, but you can't see him at first. If you, uh, We should look behind the curtain, but no, no, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain because he's the Wizard oh, yeah. of Oz. Yeah, yeah, that one. Yep, yeah, yeah. Long way of saying that this is the, the man who 
still gives us that wonderful spiel at the end going like, well, Tin Man, you had a hot all along. Um, Frank Morgan, born in New York to Josephine Wright and George Diogratio Wepperman. Uh, he's the youngest of 11 children. The elder Mr. Wepperman, born in Venezuela, he is brought up in Hamburg, Germany, and was of German and Spanish ancestry. Uh, mm-hmm. he's, his initial career begins after he attends Cornell University and joins Phi Kappa Psi fraternity and the Glee Club within. Uh, he first stars in uh, Raffles with John Barrymore, Raffles the Amateur Cracksman, an independent film produced in and about New York City. By the 30s, MGM is so impressed by Morgan that they sign him to a lifetime contract. He is best remembered, obviously, for The Wizard of Oz. He also... Uh, beat out W.C. Fields for the role of the wizard. I was supposed to play that fucking cool wizard with my big old head floating around, making fun of Julie Garland and her friends. Um, he beat him out. Yeah, I, I am happy to. Although I still want to see W.C. Fields as the wizard. But it's okay because I can just do what I just did there and imagine yeah. it in my head. <laughs> yeah. Um. And uh, But he is in other films such as Saratoga, Casanova Brown, uh, The Great Morgan, The Human Comedy. Um, This is Frank Morgan's movie. Uh, Jimmy Stewart and Margaret Sullivan are important to the film. Obviously, we're going to talk about the love plot in the film. And I think we're going to be breaking up in terms of the sections of this film because of how much goes on. That's kind of like day to day, like in the life of. Yeah. Let's talk about Frank Morgan's story in the film first. He is the owner of this business. He has run it for years. He has basically grown up amongst these people. Um, Perovich has worked with him seemingly, seemingly just as long as Kralik, if not a, if not a wee bit longer. Um, uh, and he is currently trying to figure out if selling cigarette boxes that play the same song uh, Ochachanya, uh, which is uh, Dark Eyes uh, in Russian. Uh, Ochachanya, sorry, I'm mispronouncing it, but yeah, you know, Dark Eyes. Uh, these cigarette boxes that are clearly cheap and clearly not actual leather goods. We are we are watching Frank Morgan go through a midlife crisis in this movie, and it's <laughs> kind yeah. of amazing. Yeah. What I. What, I I defy anybody to watch this film and not be moved by Frank Morgan. Yeah. Even though oh, God, he, the speech, <laughs> the speech that he gave, like mm-hmm. that scene. Oh my God. I was like rewatching it. I was like, I want to freaking cry. We're talking about one, the one in the hospital, right? Uh, no, the one he gave to all of his employees before he, that he let them go for uh, on christmas oh oh yes 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 because i was just sitting there and i was like this is a guy that is realizing he has focused on all the wrong things in Mm -hmm. life yeah and realizing it in that moment and all of his employees just like don't recognize that that's what's happening and just leave he's it's almost like hope it it feels like he is the I think he is cinema's most relatable and sympathetic boss. Mm-hmm. 
in terms of like a workplace comedy, he is the most sympathetic boss that has ever existed in cinema and probably will ever exist. Mm-hmm. Because you don't hate Matichek from the moment you see him. No. You're not sure if you're going to love him. He's definitely yeah. eccentric. He definitely mm-hmm. has an issue with power dynamics with Kralik. Yes. But he's got something about there's a gleam in his eye that you can't tell him to go away completely and that's through the power of frank morgan's performance and as the performance goes from the beginning into the midpoint when he unloads about like for one day of year i asked my six employees to stay here and the story keeps getting interrupted i love that he keeps getting interrupted And, uh, and to work through all of this the one of the cruxes of his relationship with Jimmy Stewart and why it devolves and why Jimmy gets fired in the movie is because there's a couple of things like what, what, what we see as the audience may seem as the beginning of the end for Jimmy has to do with the hiring of Margaret Sullivan. But then you realize pretty quickly that that's not the case. Um, and, uh, as the plot devolves, it's it's clear that that dinner invitation is not an ongoing thing anymore for Jimmy Stewart, for Kralik. Yeah. And by the time they get to the confrontation where he's just like, Mr. Dvatichek, what the fuck, bro? What the hell? I, I thought we were friends. What the hell? And Matichek's just like flat out, dude, like, it's clear that you're not happy here. And it's yeah. like, and, and little do we really realize that Matichek has been suspecting Kralik of having an affair with yeah. Mrs. Matichek. Yeah. And uh, your first when you first watch it, you're like, what the what the frick is his problem? Yeah. 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 And uh, I wanted to bring up the revelation scene with that, because it also includes uh, a stable character actor from To Be or Not To Be, uh, Charles Halton, uh, who played Dobosh in um, To Be or Not To Be plays the private investigator who gives Frank Morgan the information that it's not uh, Kralik, but it's that it's Valdish. Yes. And, you know, when you watch To Be or Not To Be, uh, uh, you get a different uh, version of that actor, Charles Halton, uh, as more of a kind of like a, like a direct, serious, silly guy. Here he is delivering straight lines to Frank Morgan, who is receiving and replying in straight manner. In the middle of this lighter comedy, we are given a sincere human dilemma that then immediately carries into the next scene with an attempted suicide. And and we were talking about I was talking about at the top how this movie has a dual look at it when it comes to this and to be or not to be in terms of the uh, subversion of the imagery here in To Be or Not To Be. There's a suicide attempt in To Be or Not To Be too, but it's played for laughs. Here it's played for drama. Yeah. So everything is subverted on the other end. So these, if this is the establishing point, Lubitsch is really wearing his heart on his sleeve here. Yes. It doesn't seem like a Lubitsch film because it's not grandiosity and it's there are serious moments. And like, it's, it, it's, I would say it's, I would say this is an elegant looking movie about non, non-elegant people. Mm-hmm. The very non-elegant people like, and like supremely on the surface because of their income status and their class. Even Mr. Matichek who has means is not like 
Yeah. He's still struggling for money if his store is trying to stay afloat. He's clearly right. having to give his money a bunch of his wife a bunch of money for reasons he does not know. Uh, mm-hmm. So he's well, he knows, but yeah, he, he knows. But, yes, but <laughs> you know what I mean. Like he's not. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's not. He's not giving. He's not. He doesn't have disposable income, um, and so there is an elegance. There is a. There is an elegance to middle to slightly upper class that he's paying here. And Mm -hmm. I think that this lends to the fact that Lubitsch, this is the movie that he's making where he decides to wear his heart on his sleeve and make something about himself, or at the very least, the closest he's going to get to himself Uh, because Mm -hmm. to be or not to be like a lot of his other films, also other films as well. Like there are elements of Shakespeare or the theater or, elements of elegance that are contained within that are true to Lubitsch, but they are not this specific to his familial past. Mm -hmm. And it's one thing to make allusions like that and draw conclusions and put on our film historian caps and go like, well, you know, Lubitsch made this because he was feeling sad about his family and whatnot. And it's like, that's a, that's a conclusion we are drawing. It's not the definite answer. I don't have Lubitsch in front of me to go like, yeah, it's fucking true. But you know, all evidence points to this fact to the point where rarely is the dr- dark comedy ball dropped here. Uh, rarely. If anything, the darker moments are played for their sincere dark elements uh, to the point where it's thank God Peppy shows up and saves Mr. Matichek from suicide, which again, Peppy's the hero that Matichek and company needs, but doesn't deserve. Um, <laughs> And when Matichek goes to the hospital for a nervous breakdown, he makes the recently fired Kralik the head of the store. And that's where we get the demise of Valdish by that point. But by the time Morgan gets to the end of the film, he has that incredible moment before the Christmas rush ends. And then I will tell you my favorite moment in the movie apart from one with Pepe apart from one with Pepe has to do with Rudy, the new Mm. boy that uh, is employed after (laughs) spoilers. Pepe becomes a clerk uh, Mm. through, through very ingenious means. Might I add in a world where we could use such ingenuity, given the current uh, economic status of Americans today, Pepe's a God. Rudy though, is his new ward. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and uh (laughs) mr matichek mr matichek clearly does not have anybody to really hang out with in the holidays now his life his wife is gone um he's certainly not going to be hanging out with mr valdish mr krolik well he could hang out with him but we're going to talk about why i can't do that later um and uh so mr matichek kind of connects with this rudy character and he it's interesting how he finds the comfort in something that he would feel with the Krolik character, but instead has now found it in a younger ward. So it ends up becoming kind of like um, Pirovich. Pirovich makes an allusion to a father-son relationship between Krolik and Matichek. So mm-hmm. here it's either another father-son relationship or more than likely because Morgan's getting older, it, it more alludes to a grandfather-grandson relationship or something like that. Something, because he seems more jovial. It's not so much business-like. It's more like, how would you like to have the finest fucking food ever? Like, 
that's the kind of spoil the crap out of you oh dude like if you want comic books i've got all the cool comic books at the house i swear i'm not a creep and (laughs) i'm not gonna stuff you in the back of the van yeah no 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 don't worry you're not gonna be turned into my fucking dinner or whatever you're gonna have to i'm gonna give you dinner because it's christmas time um but uh i'm i'm frank morgan apparently now the uh but so that's the ending for him Pirovich, as we said, is kind of a side character. The one thing, the one through line he has is that his wife uh, is sick to the point where he's had to call in an expensive doctor. And one yeah. of my favorite bits is that he thinks about, like, I think it's Krolik asks him, uh, you know, like, did you call the doctor? He's like, oh, no, no, I got to call them. Because <laughs> if he doesn't call the doctor, the doctor's going to come and he'll have to pay for the doctor. <laughs> um, and... Pirovich has my favorite comic moment in the film in terms of a physical gag. When they're doing the cigarette box routine, Hope. Mm-hmm. Oh, and- anytime Mr. Matichek says, I want your honest opinion, we see him running away. <laughs> yes. Going upstairs wherever he can to hide. Yes. Yeah. Now, um, but yeah, Pirovich kind of has that side character trope. He, he dispenses the advice. Yeah. I like when uh, uh, Margaret Sullivan asks uh, Frank Morgan, like, can I get off? And, like, he blows up and she just runs behind the counter and starts, like, sorting items as fast as she can. Yep, yep. And because she is, she is... Well, we're gonna we're gonna get to her her and Stuart because I, I kind of wanted to save their dynamic for last because it is yeah no I understand that yeah no but uh but you're right that physical timing with her with her also Matichek does a similar thing when he's calling the distributor of the cigarette boxes and he hides under the table for a second before he blows up and comes back into frame uh and so like there's this. There's something that Lubitsch does that I love with it is that he kind of uses the shop as a theatrical stage setting and he can kind of play yeah. with theatrical blocking in there. So it's not screwball or slapstick or anything like that. It's something different. It's more about farce or a little bit more, but he's doing it in a way that's not, it's not to be or not to be or Ninochka where things are a little bit more broad. Um, mm-hmm. Everything's a little bit more subtle here. The most yeah. action we get is in the most emotionally satisfying scene in the movie that has nothing to do with romance. It has to do with punching the shit out of Valdiv. Uh Yeah. Yeah, that... I don't think there's ever a more satisfying punch. Yes, oh my gosh. Especially... I, like, I wanted to see him kick the shit out of him. Especially seeing... Him getting the shit kicked out of him as twenty different cigarette boxes play Ochachonia. That that I don't think that's ever existed. I don't think it'll ever exist again. The equivalent today would be playing Who Let the Dogs Out inside of a bunch of Furby dolls or something. I don't know. They all fall to the ground as some as you punch your enemy and win the day or whatever. But I wanted to play. I I recorded this on my phone. And I want to play it here, and and I'll cue it up in full Q, uh, HQ audio for the audience that's listening. But Pepe has my favorite scene, comedy scene in the movie. Period, comedy scene. Yes. It's after he's come back and been made a clerk, mm-hmm. and he has called, uh, and he has and he has called the the employment agency to get a new delivery boy. Oh yeah. Hangs up the phone, and I'm going to play the clip right now, and hopefully you can hear. 
over the phone here. Yes. Matichek and Company, good morning. Oh, yes, Mrs. Matichek. Don't miss this, folks. Hello, Mrs. Matichek. Yes, this is Peppy speaking. That's right. Oh, I didn't bring you that bottle of perfume. Well, you're never going to get it. What do you think of that? Your perfume days are over, Mrs. M. Yes, this is Peppy speaking. Oh, you want to speak to Mr. Marchek? That's too bad. Just at the moment, he's up in a balloon with two blondes. Now, watch this. You wouldn't like to speak by any chance to Mr. Vardish. <laughs> that got her. Draw your own conclusions. There is no drawing your own conclusions to that. That is like not as subtle. That is like. What you don't see, Hope, what you don't know is that I have access to a secret cut that Lubitsch made just for random people who would understand this. And I'm glad to share it with you someday. Okay. It's a very, very special cut of the movie. And after that scene happens. I don't know how Lubitsch had access to this song, but after Pepe walks off saying, draw your own conclusions, the song Gangster's Paradise by Coolio plays because that's how <laughs> badass Pepe is. Yes. That's how badass Pepe is. I mean, it was a great moment. And <laughs> <laughs> no doubt about that. Cause it's like, what I what I find funny is like, even after he says like, draw your own conclusions, they're like, they come up to him like, what what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> like, just... <laughs> just said that Mr. Vanish is having an affair with his boss. Like, is how can he make that any more clear than just saying that sentence? <laughs> Look, kids, what do I have to explain to you? Do I have to explain to you that I don't know Mrs. Valdish was screwing around with Mrs. Matterchick? Did you want me to say it out loud? I can't. You know why? Because there's pre-code senses, and we're oh, 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 oh gotta keep our mouths shut. <laughs> yes, Mister Sherlock. Yes, I didn't say any naughty words. <laughs> do you think that Lubitsch got gets away with saying that because the characters act confused? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, well, the so okay, so the line, the line that he gives, like just at the moment, he's up in the up in an air balloon with two blondes. That's 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 the subtler version of that line. But again, you know, it's not so salacious anyway to begin with. The dialogue no. is tame, but we know what it means. It's like the Marx Brothers. When but, they tell a sexual joke, but the difference is this is so scaled back because Lubitsch is a little bit more uh, subtler than that. A little bit, but like when you just say you wouldn't happen to like to talk to Mr. Badash, how is there any other interpretation of like, yeah, I know that you, what you have with Mr. Badash. Well, they may not know the specific details just yet, because Matterchek hasn't had time to tell them, but True. you're right. But you're right. You know what it is? Pepe is very proud of himself, Hope. He's very, yeah. very proud. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. He should be proud. And, and because it, it definitely gives a satisfying moment of like, I mean, we never meet Mrs. Matterchek, but gives a satisfying conclusion to her little story that he gets to tell her off yes. because yeah. throughout the movie, he is, she is also like he, uh, 
Peppy is answering the phone, and you can tell that Mrs. Matichek is ordering him around. Yeah, and annoying the piss for, out of him. <laughs> yeah, for for these little rendezvous, and so I have a theory that you know they in the in the movie they say when I got the anonymous tip, yeah. it had to be Peppy. Yeah, yeah. No and- one else knew. Yeah, and you know, good for Pepe. Mm-hmm. It means that when he says to the doctor, I'm a contact man, he wasn't mm-hmm. fucking lying. Mm-hmm. Which also gives him another reason to say, hey, look, doc, don't call me a delivery boy. Do I call you a pill pusher? Again, yeah. classic Pepe line. But um, uh, And uh, so, yeah, that this is the lives of the employees of Matic Chicken Company. You mm-hmm. have your you have your snarly, scheming two timing employee in Valdish. You mm-hmm. have your eager upstart slash badass gangsta mofo in Peppy. You have uh, your you have your cider characters like Ilona. Um, mm-hmm. You have Mister Purovich, who is your wise old Jedi master, um, as I have kind of referred to him in my head, because Felix Bressart should have been a Jedi. If I really think about it, I would love Felix Bressart to be a Jedi. Um, and you also have the you have the the in this case the sympathetic albeit tough gruff boss mm-hmm. but of course this is a rom-com and we've got to have our two romantic comedy leads and of course they are Kralik and Clara their story is the story that has since been repeated over the course of movie history in terms of remakes of this film and also rom-coms who are inspired by it mm-hmm. Hope, give the audience the basic spiel of the love plot of Shop Around the Corner. The basic spiel of the love plot of Shop Around the Corner is that, okay, so uh, Kralik and uh, can't talk. What is Margaret Sullivan's character? Just had a blank. Clara. Clara. Thank yeah, you. Clara. Yeah. Clark and Cr- Clara are writing letters to each other, but they don't know that it's each other. So Clara gets a job at Matichuk and Company where uh, Krolik works. And so they're still writing these letters, but they're fighting at this store um, because they haven't revealed each other's names. And so they're falling in love and they basically agree to meet. And then the boss, Mr. Matichek, says nobody can leave the store that night. And so they all uh, are late getting to the restaurant where they're supposed to meet meeting. And Krolik looks, has well, he has Pirovich look in and say, like, what does she look like? And he's like, it's Clara. He's like, oh, you're, then, you're, you're not going to believe this, but... <laughs> Yes, it's Clara. Can it's you a, believe it? Clara, like, brace yourself. It's it's that woman who will yeah, clearly yeah. go on to influence somebody like Diane to hang out with somebody like Sam for ten years. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about, Felix? This is all fucking foreign language to me. Um, well, technically, yeah, yeah, technically, yeah, yeah. <laughs> By the way. I love that Jimmy Stewart, they they commit to the Budapest setting so much that you see Felix Bressart and Jimmy Stewart reading Hungarian newspapers. And there's a Hungarian 
um, advertisement over their shoulder. Yeah, and it's not like it's it's one of those movie magic things where in this case it does work. Where I'm like, clearly Jimmy Stewart did not grow up in Hungary. However, <laughs> right, and like the reason why they uh, he Lubitsch wanted them over there, I believe, is because uh, oh, what was the reason he said like. I don't remember if it was like he didn't, he would think that they would, the audience would be more accepting of uh, this story if but, it but was. If it, if it had a, a bit more of a European aesthetic and something a little yeah. bit more like that, there's a touch of perceived Fantasy. class. Um, yeah. uh, and I think it's also, there had been a lot of depression era rom-coms of this ilk that had come out over the years. It feels like it had been, I, I'm not sure of the exact reason, but I'd have to take a guess and say it's yeah. because this is a new angle on it. Yeah. And also, again, as we discussed, he is clearly drawing it's, into something from his past. But like, there have been pe- people that are like, well, why don't you just put it in America? If this is so universal, like, why can't you put it in America where the actors, the two main actors are clearly from everybody else is from like the the Austria Hungary uh, Germany area that have they're in Hollywood now but they've all immigrated but not Jimmy Stewart and Margaret Sullivan uh, so I I just find that interesting but uh, back to the love the love plot so then of course uh, so Jimmy Stewart character Krolik knows that Clara uh, is his sweetheart in the letters but she doesn't know he tries to meet her. Um, tries to kind of goes into the restaurant to reveal it but doesn't end up doing it and so he tries to kind of lower her expectations of because she is expecting someone totally different in in she calls him an insignificant clerk which I think is one of the most gut-wrenching like you wouldn't think that but like just the way he responds anyway we should talk about that. But. No, no, well, no, it's 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 totally perfectly fair. I mean, the only other time it's been very rude to be called a clerk in such a derogatory way is when Jason Lee walked out of the movie's restaurant and said, take care of clerks, and then did, gave the gun sign to Dante and Randall. But it's okay, because Randall made sure that he got the Piss and Flies burger that then Jay and Silent Bob got a hold of, and Jay and Silent Bob said, this tastes like Piss and Flies, don't it? Because I'm Jimmy Stewart, and I've watched Clerks too a couple times. Um, <laughs> no, uh, yes. We are going to talk... like So that that is the love plot of this film. Yeah. It is designed around I'm going to call it a Hitchcockian trope however it's not as yeah. well, as I've been kind of realizing it you can't just call it the, the Hitchcock bomb under the table but for f- basic film language let's call this the bomb under the table we know that these two are going to end up together so now the question is how and I'm get, you know what? My friend Ernst is going to show you how Jimmy and Margaret are going to get together. And they're going to have a big old fucking weird, awkward time together. But it's okay because they're going to look at each other's stockings and love each other by the end of this picture. That we get to see it unfold. There is like a form of tension and suspense. And we talked yeah. about in the to be or not to be how he toes the line between teetering laughter and terror. <laughs> but in a very different way. Here, it's small stakes suspense. 
Mm-hmm. It's emotional suspense. It's emotional from the grand, the 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 whole scheme of not only is we the audience knowing, but eventually Jimmy Stewart goes like because Felix Bressart points it out and goes like, ah, oh, so I've been in love with Maggie this whole time. Ah, oh, okay, and yeah. and he comes around on the idea, um, and the scene in the cafe might be one of the most perfectly executed romantic scenes or romantic banter yeah. scenes in a movie that doesn't come off as romantic because nothing is satisfied by the end of it. If anything, yeah. it leads us further down yes. the road into what we end up getting in terms of like nobody being satisfied. There's still the mystery for Margaret Sullivan <laughs> of who the right. mystery lover is. Um, and, I like what Nora Ephron pointed out about that scene because she has, I mean, she has her own version of the scene. It's the same in every movie. Like it's pretty much the, pretty much the same dialogue in every movie, just change up the lines a little bit here and there. And it's also what she said. It's one of the hardest to take just because of how long that scene is. And the, the way that shot is like they're back to back and then they kind of like switch over like there's lots of people moving and and such for that scene there was a lot of setups for it and Mm -hmm. maybe that's why when i'm looking at it i'm thinking this is one of the most brilliantly staged shots because it requires a lot of setup it's a very precise form of imagery Mm -hmm. down to the shot with the with the two chairs splitting them down the frame Mm -hmm. um which seems like a simple shot, except it's not, especially to motivate Jimmy to get to that point. Right. Yeah. You've got to like, emotionally yeah. motivate him to get to that point. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that only comes from that first interaction, then comes to that second interaction. And then it continues further yeah. with them talking. Mm-hmm. Um, you're right. And that's gotta be hard for the actors too, to like, to just keep going with that dialogue. Cause it's a long bit of dialogue back and forth. Yeah. It, it it is uh but it's not above the or it's it's not above the ability of people like Stuart and Sullivan. Right. I think Sullivan I haven't talked much about her performance. Here's what I'm gonna uh throw out here is that having not known of her difficulties uh on in real life you could have fooled me and uh, and told me she was the sweetest person in Hollywood and I probably would have believed it. Because she's yep. that good at playing off that vulnerability, playing off that naivete, but with a learned air about her. She's not yeah. stupid. In fact, she's yeah. very intelligent. She's very, yeah. very wise. Just a little naive. Yeah, a little naive. But like, there's a difference between being being naive yeah, really and being stupid. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's, it's a very different... It's like, yeah, it's just like not being like necessarily like street smart you know yeah exactly she's book smart but she's not unlike peppy she's not street smart peppy peppy's peppy's a weird breed of both book smart and street smart it's why he's america's greatest badass that lives in hungary um but the but this love story as it evolves we get the we get two great cinematic moments out of Mm -hmm. it past the cafe scene First, after Matichek has gotten the job as the head of Matichek and Company, 
Margaret comes in. She doesn't fully quite believe that he's been made the head of Mad Chicken Company. She's kind of like, oh, you, the, the, the head of the, don't, stop making don't fun of me. Cry, yeah. Stop making fun of me, Carly. Stop making fun of me. He's like, well, I'm fucking not. What, what, what's so wrong with me being upper management? <laughs> and she faints in his office. And <laughs> that was a little bit like, I was like, oh my goodness, women fainting in old movies. I forgot about that. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Hi, Jim, uh, audience, this is Jimmy Stewart. Look, I know seeing this 90 years later seems all that fucking stupider, but trust me, the scene where she's in bed is going to be fucking wonderful, so you just got to ride with this one outdated motif. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, though, the bed scene, though, she gets, she's in bed, she's depressed, she's anxiety-ridden. She's basically me on a th- on a Thursday or Friday before I'm realizing the weekend is upon me. And yep. um, but unlike yeah. her, I don't have letters like this to read. So she's sitting in bed. She's talking to Krolik, mm-hmm. and Krolik's trying to get her out of their funk. I think Kr- and Krolik's also trying to kind of be like, "Listen, I I hate to burst your romantic bubble, but I'm technically your pen pal." And <laughs> and. But he can't quite get it out. I don't think he wants to break the illusion for her. I really don't think he wants to do. No, I think so. Like, I think the modern version of You've Got Mail does a very good job of showing exactly what is going on in this character's brain. Right. Of of trying to say, like, okay, this person has this idea of what I am. I need to break it down a little bit to show that, like, I am not perfect. I yeah. am not this ideal. Yeah, exactly. And it starts coming off in the form of him basically lowering his defensive like, or his snippy attitude that he has initially at the beginning of the movie and really breaking down his own emotional barriers. And she gets the letter, which is also clearly written by him. And he gives one of my favorite lines in the movie, which is it's amazing what one letter can do. It's yeah. A very nice lines. Very beautiful line. Uh, you see a sparkle in Margaret Sullivan's eye. You see the, the shy sheepish Stuart demeanor that has endeared him to the hearts of millions to this day. Um, when we talked to Kelly Stewart's daughter at the Jack Benny convention, we were all marveling at, her father's ability to do such a thing. And I know I make fun of Jimmy with the imitation, but it's comes out of a sincere place of love. Jimmy Stewart was a embodiment of all of our natural anxieties and our nervous tics that make us an average human being. He's very good at playing every man. And that's not a denigrating Mm-hmm. application to make um no. in a way that i think gets <laughs> yeah i think it's been tossed around over the years because obviously a new generation goes like we don't want to be jimmy stewart's we want to be robert de niro's and then i'm just like oh well in a couple of years you're not gonna want to be a robert de niro um but the and then margaret sullivan i'm actually curious from your standpoint how her character trope uh, continues towards down the line in cinema before we talk about the very end of the movie. Cause she doesn't seem, 
she she seems very capable well, of handling herself in a way that other heroines right. of the era don't. And I think that's what resonates uh, because she isn't like she isn't weak. She is she speaks her mind, which it gets her in gets her the snippy responses from uh Krolik, but I think her character is it's hard to say. It's hard to say because I think she's a strong character that speaks her mind, but I'm not necessarily sure like I I think in the movie I think she's a little too mean. Like I cannot relate to her as much mm-hmm. because she is living in this completely idealized world, which is a kind of, um, she is reading a book in it where, and she does kind of bring up that she uh, was living in this fantasy world where she uh, was believing that she's like this great romancer, but she's not. Uh, And so like, I can kind of understand that, but like also like, but I can't totally relate to it because I can't understand. I don't understand why that justifies being mean to someone that is also at the same place you are. Right. And I like, I think I do think that's a generational disconnect. Right. And I, I think, I think I do like the more, even like the more, what I find interesting about the remake is I think it's supposed to be set even earlier than uh, than the shop around the corner, but it's made later. Uh, but it has that like she, I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say at this point because I don't under I don't really identify with the character in the old version of it as much. Okay. I like the story. I understand, like, I understand it. It's just, I don't, I don't identify with her because she's just too mean I think, and I'm not mean <laughs> at I, all. I think that I I don't disagree with you. I do. I, I mean, cause actually like it is interesting to bring up the fact that she is a little bit more uh, snippy or snappy. Yeah. Than Jimmy is. Cause Jimmy's obviously going to a vulnerable point by a certain moment in the movie. I look at it more as one of the reasons that I, I, I do kind of feel when I watch the performance that even though there is that element to it, I also feel some sense of strength coming through her that at least gives her the ability to make decisions for herself in a way that a character of that era probably wouldn't be written. Right which I think definitely comes from Rafelson and Lubitsch looking at it and going like, what if she were more interesting? And, you know, but, but you're right. right. It is very weird Mm -hmm. how denigrating she can be to Stuart, even Mm -hmm. up to the final moments. Um, Yeah. And before that final moment, which we're going to get to, there is this wonderful Hitchcock like moment visually where we're at the mailbox looking from the mailman's perspective and, and which is definitely something Hitchcock would have done going like, what if we talked about this from the mailman's perspective? Like, what yeah. is he looking at this romantic story and go like these fucking idiots. <laughs> um, but the letter is not there. Yeah. 
and we just see her hand and through pure cinema all we need to know is is that not a letter has come and she is distraught and devastated then we get the obviously the scene with the bedroom then we get the other scene that basically she's going off to meet mystery man for what she assumes is basic marriage like she's like it's in the bag i got this <laughs> you know but she uh but that's when stewart basically kind of starts breaking down the reality for, it's yeah. it's so <laughs> hardcore yeah breaking down the yeah it's not gonna it's this is this is gonna sound mean but it's but this is the best way i can describe it given my mental state at the moment after working a shift at work it's like shutter island when ben kingsley has tried to get through to leonardo dicaprio and finally realizes i have to tell him that he murdered his wife at their house <laughs> so i'm going to break it down for leo as slowly as possible um, and, but no, the, the reality is like she's, he starts kind of slowly laying in the hints of like, look, I'm your mystery man. Like I stole Victor Hugo quotes. Uh, I clearly have a, a higher opinion of my own vocabulary and diction than I actually possess like that. He starts laying into it and then suddenly she starts realizing and then it finally clicks. And she says, my, uh, my psycho, I believe the line is my psychology is a little messy right now. <laughs> Um, and, and then we have this moment of connection that is a callback with lifting up your pant legs. Right. Um, and then that's where the movie ends. Yeah. On this uplift, we get this very nice romantic moment at the end. As a movie, when it comes to Lubitsch creating this very soft workplace centered themed movie i think that the reason why this film is more popular on a mass uh, on a mass point of view in lubitsch even compared to to be or not to be has to do with how sweet and sincere in its sweetness it is yes um, i think there is a uh uh, there's a critic named David Kerr in the reception of this film. Like one of the one of the more contemporary modern critics says that Lubitsch makes brilliant deployment of point of view, allowing the audience to enter perceptions of each character at exactly the right moment to develop maximum sympathy and suspense. And that's correct because we one of the reasons I talked about the film this I wanted to talk about the film this way and not going through the plot bit by bit is yeah. because we have so many characters in this movie. There are so many. And I, so I was reading a little bit about it and the original play like has more of a focus on all of the characters and not just the love story. So I would be interested to see like, and I, I've seen that, um, I know there's parfumery, but like there's somebody that the uh, descendant of Laszlo or however you say his name, sorry. Nicholas Laszlo, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, set he he has made he has translated it into english and has it's been put on by some theater company in california i don't remember which one but they have put it on and yeah so like that has more of the actual characters so I, I find that interesting. I would have liked to have seen that, but it was a couple of years ago. So uh, it was uh, it, uh, there was one here that I'm reading in 2004. Parafumery, 
Um, how are you pronouncing it? Gosh darn it. Uh, Parfumery? Parf- I don't know. Parfumery. Uh, was produced for the first time as an English language play by the theater department of the University of Illinois after James Burton Harris, the director of the department's Summerfest, found a translation of the original scripts in papers donated by Samson Rafelson to the university's rare book and special collections library. So, but see, that's still the translation by him. Oh, by by Rafelson. Okay, so then this is another one. Okay. Yeah, this is that's like the 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 more with the more focus on the love story uh the other one is more focused on the shop as a whole oh okay that would be interesting to see yeah all right that that god that would be cool I don't want yeah to go. god covid needs to end so we can make this yeah. play happen again well i want to um, see this <laughs> there were uh two things that i found out about like production you've mentioned most of them but that i found interesting mm-hmm. was and the, my, the one that I like the most is that this film was shot in the order of its narrative. Yeah, in, in sequence, which you don't normally do scheduling-wise because that can be a fucking nightmare if you try to and, do that. And I love this, though. And it's possible because, like, all of it's pretty much done on one set. But I like it because I feel like it gives you more time to build that relationship in a real experience like you would mm-hmm. uh, if you were actually working at the store because time passes and like in between scenes and like time passes what when you're working at, at a store. It, it, so it, I, absolutely agreed. Yeah. So I just feel like even I feel like this is better than even watching. I think that experience gives it even more a solid performance than even watching a play because you know with the play you can get used to the company but you're still not feeling that gradual building up of all of this so i feel like that that definitely made it more real i think ernst lubitsch is very good at using techniques from the theater in the world of cinema and mm-hmm. so things that would work wonderfully on theater only and not in film, he applies to the trappings of a film. Mm-hmm. And I think doing this in sequence and giving us time to build the relationships and proceeding in the order of a play as it would be presented on stage, which would be sequentially. Mm-hmm. You're right. We get a perfect progression of the emotional spectrum. It's one of the reasons why Sullivan and Stewart in the movie are as amazing as they are because we are seeing it unfold naturally over time. It's also Mm -hmm. why we see Valdesh adjust his performance over the course of time. We also see Perovich change a little bit as time goes on. We see Morgan uh, as Matichek adapt his performance. We see Pepe become more and more of a learned badass as each passing moment goes by. Um, And I think that that is a testament to what happens when you do do that, even though it seems like Lubitsch is a director that does not play by a rule book that you would follow today. Like if I told a director or if let's let's, shoot this sequentially, not even that, (laughs) what if I, what if I told my actors, how I want to do it by acting it out for them. Now I've tried that before when I didn't know much about directing and communicating and they didn't like it. And now I would not do that. 
ever yeah. unless it was like it would have to be something where i'm like no guys this is so specific that if you don't follow my instructions i'm not going to get what i want right but you're not supposed to do that because that's not how you communicate to an actor who needs to find it naturally right but shooting in sequential order it's possible it's just frustrating yeah. it's frustrating it because it you is. have to adjust your continuity like crazy and i i like to shoot sequentially when i can because I just, I think it makes more sense in my brain for mm -hmm. that to happen. Right. But I also think it's interesting that this was made in like a February. Like it was made in less than 30 days. Yep. Less than 30 days. There is a, um, there is a quote by Mr. Lubitsch uh, in regards to this. It's not a big picture, just a quiet little story that seemed to have some charm. Didn't cost very much for such a cast under $500,000. It was made in 28 days. I hope it has some charm. This is him speaking to the New York Sun in January of 1940. You want to know how much 500... Sorry for interrupting. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. You want to know how much $500,000 is today? I'm, I'm afraid to hear it, but tell me anyway. <laughs> 10 million. <sighs> 500,000 is 10 hope, million. I hope that's a Blumhouse movie. That's a Blumhouse... We, which, which nobody makes I, a movie for that much money anymore, even though they fucking should because it makes the most fiscal sense. <laughs> so, like, the even though the it's like the bare minimum set, it's like it's still extra because it's still Lubitsch. Yeah, and also the the craftsmanship of that era is all they have, so it's justified cost. You can't justify building the Matichek and Son Company set in person anymore. It'd be green screened. Or it would be found on a location that was accessible and you'd have limited time to film it on. But yet they have recreated it in like um, Broadway. Like there was just a version in 2016 where like they kind of have like this revolving set because there's not that many. Uh, there are still films that do physical sets, but it's. Yeah. But if you're talking about your big budget movie that would allow money for something like this, they're going to do the digital version of it because they think they can make it a little more crisp. Um, or that's what the director wants, whatever it's their preference. Yeah. But but you're right. We do get it still in the theater, which is why I think this still is a good way to see this story done if you want a new interpretation of it is through the theater. Mm -hmm. um, because you do get that same intimacy that you get in the shop around the corner itself as a movie. Mm -hmm. um, we should talk about the reception of the film um, because I don't have a ton of reviews from the era. Um, I have one uh, that uh, from Variety that says, although the although picture carries the indelible stamp of Ernst Lubitsch at his best in generating humor and human interest from what might appear to be unimportant situations, it carries further to impress via the outstanding characterizations by Sullivan and Stewart in the starring spots. Sullivan's portrayal is light and fluffy in contrast to the seriousness of Stewart in both business and romance. So it feels like they might even be seeing this from an all different perspective. Um, but the rest of the review goes on. The supporting cast is very well balanced and the compact group is Frank Morgan as the owner operator of the small gift shop in Budapest and his staff, including Joseph, Sh Joseph Schulkraut, Sarah Hayden, Felix Bressart, William Tracy, Inez Courtney, and Charles Smith. The story, based on Nicholas Laszlo's play, might be termed a small edition of Grand Hotel, 
which practically all of the action taking place in the small shop. Uh, Stuart senior clerk confides to Bressart that he is corresponding with the girl through a newspaper ad, takes the affair with the unknown very seriously. Sullivan arrives to apply for that job after being turned down by Stuart is hired by Morgan. From that point on, it's an intimate tale of the store and its workers. Story swings along at fast pace. So it's like this brief snippet. Frank S. Nugent, um, said that Ernst Lubrich is offering some of the attractive screen merchandise and shop around the corner, which opened at music hall yesterday. Ninochka appears to have used up his supply of hearty comedy for the time, at least, but his sense of humor is inexhaustible. He is, he has employed it to brighten the shelves where his tidy continental romance is stored. And among the bric-a-brac, there are several fragile scenes, which he is handling with his usual delicacy and charm assisted by a friendly staff of salespeople who are going under resoundingly Hungarian names, but remind us strangely of Margaret Sullivan, James Stewart, etc., etc. All told, they make the shop around the corner a pleasant place to browse in. The shop Mr. Lubitsch has opened for his romantic comedy purposes is a very real one. Matterchek and Company is its name. It seems to be in Budapest, and Mr. Morgan is not alone, is not alone Matterchek, but the and company as well. His clerks are the most deferential. The ritual of each day's opening scene, uh, shop opening is punctually observed. He's going into the same details the way we're kind of going into like how these people interact as the review goes on. This is for the New York Times. Um, and uh, he, at the end of the review, as he's all as he's gone through every little detail of it, he said the Cincinnati's audience yesterday apparently unhampered linguistically roared with appreciation. So the film was well received when it came out. We only have what I have only as the European box office reports that it only made $380,000. And the film, though, has carried on. In spite of any loss that the movie might have made, it carried on. Um that's just the European box office. Yeah, right? I'm not finding the American gross, which I'm finding very strange. That is strange. Yeah. Now I'm like, now I want to look this up. What the, that, what, how, how, how do we not know? <laughs> it might be my fault also for not grabbing this piece of information before we started, but yeah, I would have seen. Yeah. Oh, here we go. Let me see. I've got a cumulative worldwide gross of $36,36,800. So <laughs> uh, I'm getting an even lower number here for a worldwide gross. That's... No, not, I don't think that's right. What the heck? Um, but... I know because, like, I was reading that, yes, it was well-received, but I was reading that, like, that it was much more well received than they thought it would be. So yeah. that makes me feel like it made more money than they thought. Well, it then would. I think, but I would say that if I would, if I'm going to take a guess, then I'm going to say it's not a huge smash hit then. Um, right. Like it's not like a blockbuster. It's not Ninoch. Ninochka was a huge hit for them by comparison. And a lot of that has to do with Garbo. Um, but hope 
we've we've looked at a little bit of the reception uh, from then. Today, the movie has a hundred percent rating on Rotten Tomatoes based on twenty eight uh, current reviews. The critical consensus says deftly directed by Lubitsch from a smart, funny script by Samson Rafelson. The shop around the corner is a romantic comedy in the finest sense of the term. Very mm-hmm. astute, right to the point. Film historian David Thompson says it's among the greatest of all films. This is a love story about a couple too much in love with love to fall tidily into one another's arms. I think that's a very <laughs> wonderful statement about it. This movie is so well-beloved in the grand scheme of its story that it has been remade and adapted. Uh, the radio adapt- adaptations include the Screen Guild Theater, first in September 29th of 1940 with Sullivan and Stewart reprising their roles. Secondly, in 1945 on February 26th with Van Johnson and Felix- Phyllis Thaxter. Uh, and it was also dramatized for the Lux Radio Theater <clears throat> uh, in June of 1941 with Claudette Colbert and Don Amici. Yes. As you said... There is a remake of this film, a musical remake, in the good old summertime with Judy Garland and Van Johnson from 1949, um, directed by Robert Z. Leonard, with uncredited direction by Buster Keaton. I've never seen in the good old summertime. He's in the movie. Buster Keaton is in the movie, and he talks. Yeah. Well, he, he, ta- he had talked before in movies. Right, I know, but I just found it, like, a little strange. Right. Because of... I need to watch the movie though, because Correct. it has a, a, a legend, S. Z. Sakal, aka Cuddles, my wonderful favorite Carl the Raider in Casablanca. Also, the very first appearance of Liza Minnelli anywhere. Oh, she plays their. Oh, she plays Veronica and Andrew's daughter in the final scene. Okay, all right. I'm checking on in the good old summertime. Yeah, it's yeah. a good movie. It's it's a different tank. There is no suicide attempt, but they he still ends up hilarity still ensues. There is still mix it there's still mix ups. Is SC Cuddles the call as awesome as Frank Morgan in it? He's as gonna Frank, be it, it, Um it's a different performance. It's a different take. Okay, cool. I, I would it's, prefer different than trying to imitate because Cuddles and Morgan are two different actors, but they're both badasses. Yeah. Um, and I, it's a different, I would say it's a different character because there is no, there is no affair happening. Right. Okay. So I think this, I, there is a surly old boss um, who, um, they are on Van Johnson and the boss are on better terms throughout the most of the movie, except for one incident where everything kind of unravels. So I'll just leave it at that. Okay. And then the, the, the concept has also been adapted into the Broadway musical. She loves me in 1963. Um, which is, again, inspired by not just the film, but also the play itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think uh, the the cream of the crop, the one that we all know from today's standard, is You've Got Mail from 1998, uh, directed by Nora Ephron, written by Nora and Deli- Del- Delia, Delilah. Del- it's Delia Ephron? Uh, hold on. Now you've kind of confused me. Let's see. Delia Ephron. Yeah. Delia. It's yeah, Delia. Delia Efron. 
Um, But yeah, the late great Nora Ephron. Yes. uh, Who, uh, uh, hel- uh, who helped create Nor? Uh, who created uh, when Harry met Sally, uh, Sleepless in that, Seattle? Yeah, with with uh, Rob Reiner in that one. But yes, yes, uh, yes. Sleepless in Seattle and yeah, uh, Sleepless in Seattle. Actually, uh, it's funny that between her two Tom Hanks rom coms, Sleepless in Seattle is based on an affair to remember. And you've got well, male references in there. Yeah. Well, yeah, she's not only remaking the films, but she's, yeah, but she's also referencing the movies directly. So she's not, she's, she's, uh, it's one of those things where Efron's remakes, I think are much more respectful. And so therefore they get a pass in a way that other remakes don't. I oh, think primarily um, because she's not trying to directly reference like okay i am remaking an affair to remember she's like no there's a movie called sleepless in seattle and it's kind of like an affair to remember and it's even got references to it but it's not the same movie (laughs) do you think that's why people hate bewitched and i have another story about why she probably is very respectful of it um i haven't rewatched bewitched in a while yeah Uh, people hate it and i like it because i think steve um carell does an amazing Uncle Arthur. Uh, the the Bewitched movie, I don't remember it that well. I, when I saw it, I was a kid, and I didn't think twice about it other than mm-hmm. like, oh, it's another Will Ferrell movie, and this time Nicole Kidman's with him. Okay, cool. I wasn't yeah. in tune with Efron and what she did. Um, yeah. But, uh, and you know, Julie and Julia is a good movie, and that's one of her yeah. final efforts. Um, yeah. And so, like, I think that she carries on a legacy of Lubitsch in her own form and fashion. But okay, go ahead. I, I think that one thing that will always be missing from any other version of this is Lubitsch's touch itself. Yes, which is fine uh, because I think it's a story that has the template for other directors to apply their touch to it, like Nor Ephron. Right, and I think I the one thing I find unfortunate about. You've got mail now that I've seen all of the other versions is I really wish she would have found a way for them to work in the same store. Not because I under I like what she's done with showcasing how small stores are dying because of these big stores, but I I would like to have that interaction where Meg Ryan would say, You're nothing but an insignificant clerk. Because that Tom Hanks and Jimmy Stewart have such good acting chops and Jimmy Stewart's like you like that line doesn't seem like, okay, you know, she called me insignificant clerk, whatever. But the way he carries it off in his performance being, you can tell just extremely hurt because they are just on the same level and like it's just like he realizes in that moment he can't like live up to what she wants right so like all of this is like going through your mind all really quickly and like you don't have that quite the same moment there's still there's still a moment there's the the blend of poetry and meanness as all versions kind of say um but it, it it doesn't hit the same note it, I would need to rewatch You've Got Mail to make a firm assessment on it. It's been a long, long time. But yeah. 
I would I would say from based off of my vague memory of it that one of the reasons I appreciated the element of them being separated was that it was carrying on this story we've told before into a realm that makes more sense for the modern era. And I'm not necessarily a fan of like, oh, well, we need to update it with new technology and they need to have cell phones now instead of rotary phones or whatever. But I think small changes and adjustments to the concept help to carry the stories on over time. Right. Um, But because I'm not opposed to remakes. I mean, one of the best remakes of all time is the Maltese Falcon because it was was made twice before. But um, and then Houston got it and he said, what if I did the best version? And I think that these adjustments that you make that are your own yeah, help you create your own rom-com legacy with the templates that have been provided for you. What I appreciate is that Efron isn't ashamed of her influences. Mm-hmm. She was not afraid to say, Hey, I like affair to remember. I'm going to make my version of it. She is doing the rom-com version of what Tarantino gets lauded for doing with homage to exploitation cinema or Western cinema of the forties or uh, gangster films of the forties. You know, Efron didn't get the same amount of credit that Tarantino did. Now I'm a Tarantino fan, but even I'm going to admit sometimes he gets overpraised in comparison to somebody like Efron who clearly had an ability to do similar things around the same time period with the same limited studio resources that somebody like Quentin did. Um, and so I think it's interesting to note that just as Lubitsch, I think is more remembered now for this film. It's interesting that also with that has come the fact that he's also more remembered for to be or not to be in other circles because of other reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's also with these two Lubitsch films that have been discussed on the show, there's a dividing line of like, what's your preference with Lubitsch for me? It's to be or not to be. There's a lot of reasons for it. And it's not all just Benny related, but mm-hmm. there's another side of me that does love this film because there is another section of it going like, look, like this is a story much like to be or not to be that has been carried on in a different yeah. direction. And rom-coms for me don't work the way they used to. I used to be addicted to them when I was in high school and college. I can't do it anymore. And, uh, uh, but I, it's a genre I'm learning to appreciate under a more mature lens. And I think something like the shop around the corner is one of those Testament examples as, as you get older, it works better for you. Mm -hmm. I think the younger you are, it's not going to fit the same way because you have a, an an innate cynicism. There's an innate cynicism you've possessed when you're younger. When you watch a film like this, that's what, that's what, well, that's why, that's how I felt. But mm-hmm. I still but I still enjoyed it from the Hollywood production standard of it and the golden age standard of it. I was yeah. able to like say like, okay, this isn't a realistic romance. But it's but it's a golden age Hollywood romance. As I've gotten older, I'm like, no, this is an absolutely realistic romance. Yeah. I wasn't looking at it through the same I mean, possibly because when I was in my twenties, when I was looking at a rom com, I was wanting them to say the word fuck every other time. And mm-hmm. now I don't yeah. need that. Now I'd yeah. prefer it if they use it as little as possible um but yeah so anyway to wrap it all up i think we've talked about like this film has influenced the rom-com genre at large not the least of which with you got mail but we still see these kind of different tropes we also see the workplace comedy at play a bunch today it's a it's a bread and butter for sitcoms still to this day um yeah 
And I think also it's a testament to sometimes even the most genius directors need to make something warm at its core. Yeah. No matter how hard edge you can be, sometimes <laughs> there's a warm gooey center that you'll need to show to the world before you go back to making movies like To Be or Not To Be, in which Jack Benny fights the Nazi menace with the badassery of ham acting. And... uh and I, I I think that him showing his heart on his sleeve with this film, with the setting of the film, the characters that are fit inside of it, and these simple ideas that Rafelson extracts from the play, I think are centered around to make a film that will stand the test of time yeah. the way other films have that may not need the same pedestal that something like Shop Around the Corner deserves. I think this film's popular. I think it can be more popular. <laughs> oh, yes. It certainly could be more popular. Yeah. Um, now, you don't have to include this, but uh, do you know the connection? I gave you five films. Do you know the connection between Nora Ephron and one of them? You were talking about the five that you sent me, correct? Mm-hmm. Oh, let me pull up the list again. Uh, I believe there was Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Daddy Long Legs, uh, Paris when it sizzles, shop around the corner, and Dewberry was a lady. Oh, was it Dewberry was a lady? Yeah. Okay. So, which one do you think has the connection? It's either Paris when it sizzles or Dewberry was a lady. From is my guess, but it is Daddy Longlegs. Do you know why? No, I don't. So, I don't... Daddy Daddy Longlegs was written and was written by Nora Ephron's parents. I've never seen Daddy Longlegs, so this is new for me. Yeah. It was so I mean originally it was a book, but the screenplay was written by Nora Ephron's parents. And in You've Got Mail, she has included some of the songs that were used in Daddy Longlegs. Okay. I think I've so I've never seen Daddy Longlegs, so I think hope it's with it's uh, with Fred Astaire and uh, Leslie Caron. Okay. Huh. Hope, for your next episode, would you like to come on and talk about Daddy Longlegs and introduce me to something okay. I've never seen before? Sure. All right, then we're going to do that. Um, but to wrap up the shop around the corner, Hope, yeah. um, is there any final thoughts you want to say about the film for people out there? Uh, Just that like kind of like what we've said it's just something that i think can be time it, it's timeless and it can be passed through the ages that's why i really love the golden age of hollywood uh and i would like to that's why i like to try to share it with others is because i think that there there's still lessons to be learned and people can enjoy it from all ages there are there are timeless tales out there. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree. Um, and I think that uh, I will cap off to it that there is a lot of there is a lot of optimism in this movie that I kind of wish the world could have right now. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, with this show, we deal with reckonings and talking about tough subjects. But there's also a desire in the show to find a good comfort food film for everybody every so often. Mm -hmm. I feel like Casablanca can be one of those, even though it deals with tough subject matter. Um, mm -hmm. Well, I, I mean, this had a, a shop around the corner had a suicide attempt in it. Yeah. And but I do think 
film. But I do think that there is a lot of positivity strewn about the movie. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I think that the golden age of Hollywood gets tacked with a bunch until you actually watch the movies from the era and you're like, oh, they're just as depressing as the movies we have today. But this is a good example of that stereotypical positivity and a reason why it existed. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why a Hollywood ending has the reputation it has. And movies like The Shop Around the Corner are an exemplary version of that. And oh, sure. if you're looking for a film to give you a nice relaxing time where you don't have to primarily think about how frustrating the world can be right now, this is a good escape. Obviously we go back to learning and growing and changing and evolving. Sometimes we do need a bit of a comfort food. And if you're looking at it from the golden age of Hollywood perspective, there is a couple of places you can go to. I would obviously recommend that you go to Mr. Matichek and company's store for a nice <laughs> visit with these characters. So, Thank you very much, Hope. Le- really quickly, let the Ballyhoo out there know where they can find your podcast. Uh, well, you can find all of the classics on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and where, pretty much wherever you find podcasts. All right. Awesome. I, had a, I will say that I had a very fun time talking with you about Mel Brooks on yes. uh, that show. And I still need to edit that. Nope, don't worry. <laughs> That, hey, maybe by the time this comes out, we'll both we'll both be popping the same episodes out at the same time. So. Right, so it'll it'll be a dual release. There right? you go, right on. I can dig it. Um, but uh, but yeah, that is going to wrap it up for the Ballyhoo this week. You can find out more about us at ballyhoo.com, yesteryearballyhoo.review.com, and also at the social media tags at the end of this episode. On the next episode of the Ballyhoo Review, actually on the next couple of episodes of the Ballyhoo Review, we are going to be having a couple of different things occurring. And I'm going to give you all a kind of a sneak preview of what we're going to be having come around uh, our neck of the woods. First up, we're going to be getting a double feature of Godzilla and the Blob um, with Matt McCord and Cody from Punk Rock Horror Podcast. Um, Then we are going to have Dr. Kathy Fuller-Seeley in for Sullivan's Travels. Uh, then we are going to have Laura Lebowitz back for a Louis Benwell film called An Andalusian Dog, which is a 23-minute surrealist nightmare. And we're all going to sit down and engage in this joke that Laura started. Uh, and then I am going to have Brandon Rose come back for Buck Benny Rides Again. This will be our part two in the Mark Sandrich trilogy. And then we are going to be bringing back John Strelick for A Matter of Life and Death. Uh, Powell and Pressburger, the archers coming at you, boys. Uh, then Brad Haig will be coming on for Batman 1966. Ryan Johnson will be returning for two weeks in another town. Adam Jewell will be returning for The Apartment. Hell's a Poppin' will be discussed with Matt Willicks and new guest Brian Richards. Plan 9 from Outer Space and Forbidden Planet as a double bill with James Hart of the Real Nerds podcast. Then we will get the return of the pop culture bruise boys with a slight case of murder, Edward G. Robinson and a gangster comedy. Then we will be doing an Irene Dunn double bill uh, with my favorite wife and showboat with Ryan Frost returning. And then around that time, not exactly, but around that time, we will be starting the John Houston series. On this episode, I will announce the title. The title of the John Houston series, which we will be covering the career of John Houston, which started in the late 30s and went into the 1980s. Uh, the series will be called The Gambler's Creed. Uh, this has a lot to do with John Houston's own personal beliefs in his own strokes of luck. Um, so that is going to wrap it up for this week. 
Until all of these end next time, good night. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Pod and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. That's R E V U E. Our theme was composed by Maddie Ghost. Be sure to check him out on Twitch for more of his music. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Be sure to watch his YouTube series, Chewing the Scenery. This is Zach, signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. 